Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I'm joined by my co-hosts Damien Heath. Hello. And Cammie C. Hello. <laughs> this month we are profiling one of the greatest films ever made by a cinematic giant, Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 thriller Rear Window. Why would a man leave his apartment three times on a rainy night with a suitcase and come back three times? That's where his wife welcomes him home. Oh, no, there's something terribly wrong. I've seen bickering and family quarrels and mysterious trips at night, knives and saws and ropes, and now since last evening, not a sign of the wife. How do you know there was a murder? Because everything this fellow's done has been suspicious. Just start to cut up a human body. You're beginning to scare me. What are you going to do if one of them catches you? Now, this is a film that's been subject to a lot of analysis and film scholarship. We're going to try and condense some of these ideas and talk about how the film was made and why it remains a subject of fascination for so many people. There's going to be a lot that we don't cover and we may make a few mistakes. So if we do, please comment. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we're also going to air out interviews with Professors Murray Pomerantz and John Fawell, uh, who gave us great interviews and can shed a more academic perspective on the film than we can. London, 1910. Wife of renowned physician Hawley Crippen disappears. After a police interrogation, Crippen disguises his mistress as a boy, and they board a ship bound for the United States. Soon after this, police uncover a human torso buried in his basement, and put out a warrant for his arrest. Meanwhile, the captain of the ship recognizes Crippen and his mistress. After a sensational trial, the jury find Crippen guilty, and he is hanged on November 23rd. His mistress is acquitted, and flees to the United States the same morning of her lover's execution. It was Hitchcock's fascination with this case that was in part responsible for the murder plot that drives Rear Window forward. But Rear Window is about more than a murder. As Hitchcock told Truffaut, it's a film that plays upon the purest expression of a fundamental cinema idea, known to many as the Kuleshov effect. Kuleshov demonstrated how an audience derives more meaning from the interaction of two sequential shots, or a montage, than from a single isolated shot. If, for example, we see a man looking, then cut to what he's looking at, then cut back to his reaction, the man's character, morality and judgement are all determined by that second shot. Does he smile when he sees a cute dog? Or does he smile when he sees a woman dancing in her underwear? Our impressions of the man differ entirely depending upon what shot is sandwiched between the first and last. And Rear Window plays with this basic manipulation again and again. Based loosely on the 1942 Cornell Woolrich short story It Had to Be Murder, the film takes a subjective view of Jeff, a photojournalist confined to a wheelchair after he breaks his leg while on assignment. Stifled by his infirmity and Photoshop-perfect girlfriend, Jeff begins spying on his neighbours, partly to suppress his boredom and partly as a means of avoiding his own problems. Things take a dark turn when he begins to suspect that one of his neighbours has murdered his wife and disposed of her body. With the help of his girlfriend and no-nonsense rehabilitation nurse Stella, Jeff endeavours to solve the mystery and prove that his neighbour is guilty. 
Hitchcock worked with screenwriter John Michael Hayes to fill out the thin short story and shooting took place on stage 17 of the Paramount lot, where an extravagant set was constructed to recreate the now famous Courtyard Vista, based on a real courtyard in Greenwich Village. The film is a masterstroke in narrative and visual construction. More than murder, it's a story about ambivalence, our addiction to screens, societal apathy, and the impasse that so often plagues male and female relationships. Or perhaps it is, as Truffaut believed, simply a film about cinema and its power. Critics gushed over the film, though some objected to its lead character's voyeurism and accused Hitchcock of moral turpitude. Truffaut denies this, believing that the film's morality is in its lucidity. It's in Jeff's considered, sensible attempts to right a perceived wrong. Hitchcock, on the other hand, felt it was just a gross hypocrisy, arguing that, if given a chance, the temptation to spy on others is simply too great for anyone to resist. Certainly his audience had no trouble watching. The film grossed over $36 million, and its reputation as a seminal cinematic masterpiece has only grown over time. In 1997, it was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry. Two years later, the film went through a major restoration after it was discovered that the original negative was all but destroyed. It has inspired countless films, including a Chinese remake the year after it was released, an ill-conceived TV remake in 1998, and its very own vignette on The Simpsons. It scores a 100% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Truffaut may have put it best in his original 1954 review of the film, when he summarised it by commenting, The courtyard is the world, the reporter photographer is the filmmaker, the binoculars stand for the camera and its lens, and Hitchcock? Well, he is the man we love to be hated by. With this in mind, let's set our binocular sights on Rear Window. How many films do you think Hitchcock has in the National Film Registry? I don't know. How many? There's six. And the first one to go in there was Vertigo, then Shadow of a Doubt, Psycho, North by Northwest, Rear Window, Notorious. Actually, he has seven. They just haven't updated this page because The Birds is in there as of a few months ago. I think this, as I've mentioned to you before, Luke, is the quintessential Hitchcock movie. If I was to pick one movie to show someone who's never seen any of his movies, it would be this. I think it's really easily accessible and it's fun, but it also has a lot of the Hitchcock trademarks and it will show anybody who watches it what he's about. The other reason that I would pick this movie over so many of his other ones to introduce someone to Hitchcock is because I think this movie would make somebody want to watch the rest of Hitchcock's movies because it's so easy to watch. So I think if you showed someone Vertigo or Psycho or North by Northwest, you're going to have these more polarizing opinions about those movies. Whereas Rear Window, I haven't ever met anybody who said, I didn't like Rear Window. No, it's so entertaining. And it's such a perfect exercise in genre. And obviously he's considered like a genre filmmaker. And it's the most like Vertigo and stuff are kind of outliers in terms of they tend to be more than the sum of its parts. Whereas Rear Window is the sum of its parts and says a little bit more about society, I guess, but it's just it's just so succinct. So, yeah, it is the quintessential Hitchcock film. Like, if you, if you went, like, this is what he's about, you'd go, fuck yeah, I want to watch the rest of them. I think it, it best exploits his talents. The story is constructed so that what he does well, he can just soar in this film. It's a very controlled movie. 
Yeah. I mean, look, all Hitchcock films are very controlled, but this is very controlled. And there are very, very strict rules. And when the rules are broken, it's very noticeable. So particularly the subjectivity. Mm. As soon as we pull away from Jeff, not just visually, but auditorily, we're aware that suddenly we're not seeing things from him, his perspective. And when those rules are broken and when subjectivity sort of goes away for a little bit, you know that it's a time where you need to pay more attention. Yeah. And it's exactly the same thing of his uh, use of close-ups, which are very sparing in most of his films. And it's because it's that's the director saying, you need to know what this piece of information is. Yes. And you know, the close-up that I think is the most impressive for me is the one where he looks at Grace Kelly when she's returned from the apartment. Yes. And his feelings have changed. And that smile on his face. And we're suddenly aware we haven't really seen Jeff in a close-up. Very often. Yeah. And you don't see him smile a huge amount. No. And nothing like that. Yeah, everyone watching that knows what that smile means, and that's because of the strength of direction. There's a quote from Peter Bogdanovich when he was doing uh, the documentary. I think it was Restoring Rear Window. And he said, Rear Window is Hitchcock's testament film, meaning that in Rear Window, perhaps you see the best example of what what Hitchcock's cinema at its best stood for, which was essentially the use of the subjective point of view. You have a shot at Jimmy Stewart, you show what he's looking at, you see his reaction. And I know that that sounds like a really simple way of making a film, um, but it's also it makes it really easily accessible. And Hitchcock is artistic in the way that he does it, which is why his movies last because people can get into them very easily. They're about topics that people enjoy watching, even if they are murder. Um, but obviously, there's so many examples of these shots, these kinds of shots throughout Rear Window, and. James Stewart's facial expressions really help pull off what Hitchcock's going for. And there's the night of the murder during that thunderstorm. It's almost a really engaging engaging montage of shots which show what he's looking at. He's in and out of sleep throughout this evening and which shows what he's looking at and then shows his reaction to it. And it's I think that's one of the best sequences in the movie. Yeah, and it's intercut with those close-ups of the clock face so we get all of these little yeah. kind of cues of where we're at and what's what time it's happening he usually shoots on a 50 millimeter lens which is like the closest thing to the human eye and that apartment is quite small in terms of what a set is and a lot of uh weaker directors would use a wide angle to get a lot of that space but he he doesn't do that and it makes the whole apartment feel like it's lived in and you feel the sense of reality that you get from shooting on a lens like that is much uh, it's just much greater and and it's weird when you see him moving around you feel like you're moving with him a lot more because you know the space so well and it's something that you know I always go on about in terms of being oriented as a viewer somebody a few years ago for an art gallery or some kind of exhibition created a replica of the Hitchcock set a small replica <laughs> and uh, the detail in it was amazing I'll try to link to it in the show notes because I'd like to buy it but... <laughs> mm, I'd like to see it because oh, yeah. the, the the actual set is incredible really impressive and it, apparently it cost $72,000 at the time and they spent two months building it had 31 apartments in there and ripped out the floor yeah Jimmy Stewart's thing uh, apartment is on street, street level. level yeah and they ripped out the floor to and build it down and stuff like that. During the time of filming, they were doing tours of the set and they were having magazine spreads on the, oh, this really? impressive set that was going to be featured in Rear Window. This period of his filmography is some of the most fertile filmmaking. Like You've got Strangers on a Train 51, I Confess 53, which I haven't seen. 
Uh, dial in for murder, rear window, to catch a thief, trouble with Harry, man who knew too much, the wrong man, vertigo, north by northwest, and then you go into Psycho and the Birds and the first two films in the 60s. But, f- like, Jesus Christ. Like, if I had two of those films on your resume, you'd be happy. Yeah, so from Strangers in a Train to Psycho is 10 years. Also in the 50s, he was working with Cary Grant and James Stewart for the majority of those movies. So he had those partnerships pretty well set at that point. Jimmy Stewart and him had and Hitchcock had this relationship that was really interesting because they obviously knew each other very very closely but they didn't associate with each other outside of the film set and Jimmy Stewart was the workman like guy. He comes in, he knows what he needs to do and he does it and Hitchcock leaves him to do it whereas Cary Grant was much more like I need notes, I need all this kind of stuff, which which it sounds like just a normal actor, but apparently Hitchcock didn't like. <laughs> yeah, I heard that too, that he yeah. thought Cary Grant was a bit of a kind of pansy, whereas James Stewart yeah. was far easier. James Stewart was in Rope and then Rear Window, then The Man Who Knew Too Much and Vertigo, and Grace Kelly was in Dial M for Murder and Rear Window, and then the next year she was in To Catch a Thief. And he loved Grace Kelly, and I think he was kind of devastated when she flitted off to hey, Monaco. How many films did she make? 18 or something? She did a fair share, yeah. In six years. <clears throat> then retired. Never acted again. No, well, she became a princess. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Such a short career. I think she was 26 when she retired. So, I mean, she was 24, 26. 23 or 24 when she made Rear Window. Christ. Yeah. Grace Kelly thought that Jimmy Stewart was one of the most masculine men she'd ever acted with. There's a lot of... Uh... <laughs> controversy like there's, there's some bullshit thing in IMDb trivia it's like apparently Grace Kelly was just a little bit too beautiful well she was notorious for having flings with her co-stars yeah. Hitchcock actually told Truffaut that this was uh, one of the most creatively fertile periods of his life he's, he'd lost a significant amount of weight and as he put it his batteries were fully charged apparently 150 pounds Jesus. Yeah, and I thought I thought that's a little bit hard to believe. 150 pounds would be uh, 60 to 70 kilos, somewhere around there. I'm in love with you. I don't care what you do for a living. I just like to be part of it somehow. It's deflating to find out the only way I can be part of it is to take out a subscription to your magazine. I guess I'm not the girl I thought I was. No, there's nothing wrong with you, Lisa. You've got this town on the palm of your hand. Not quite, it seems. Let's talk a little bit about Jeff, because much has been made of Jeff, and uh, it's one of these kind of continued mysteries about exactly what is going on with him, particularly with regards to Lisa. People often, you know, obviously we've got... You know, Hitchcock makes makes a lot of Lisa's beauty in this. You know, there's that amazing entrance into the film where she looks so ethereal and absolutely stunning. It's considered, I think, one of the most beautiful shots ever committed to film. Yeah. And Jeff has no interest. And this just seems unconscionable to a lot of people who've come to this film and they've all tried to find reasons. So there's these theories about that maybe it's arrested yeah. sexual development or that he's gay, yeah, you know, uh, or that... And, and there are there are some interesting comments made, like mm. Stella says that's abnormal, and you know there's things where Lisa will say he's like I don't um what's what's going on with me, and she goes oh it's something like it's too dark for me to think about. You know there are just these tiny little suggestive things in the script mm. that they seem to be implying that Jeff is somehow sexually strange. Well, I think like sexual repression is a common theme within Hitchcock's films, and it's something that is obviously a personal thing with him. 
there was an awful Daily Mail article I read, and just because it's Daily Mail, it's awful. But it um, it's, it speaks about how he had sex once and he's married, and that's what gave us Patty. Yeah, it's, and Hitchcock's famous for you know his leading ladies, these blonde, Beautiful. and you know he like sexualizes them with his camera. All he objectifies the time, yeah. them. He abuses them. Yeah, but then, you know, in a lot of the movies, he does do the tippy headron thing and, you know, kind of wear them down with violence. Yeah. And, you know, there's been a lot of stuff out there about whether or not his films are misogynistic. I don't think they are. I think that they do women a wonderful service. They show women as being beautiful, very often powerful, very often complex. Mm. This movie, especially, yeah, that, that last shot, of Lisa reading the Himalayas book and then switching over to Harper's Bazaar. I think that's really a kind of uh, comment on misogyny and there's this expectation that she will change to suit the man that she wants to be with. Mm. And she does a little bit, but then you can see that she's still herself. Yeah, it's empowering. Yeah, it is empowering. But the other side of that is the people that would say, well, of, of course she would isn't smart enough to read the book and she would read the Harper's Bazaar. The funny thing is that there is that uh, kind of change with Lisa, but Jeff probably takes a bigger journey through the movie because his entire ideology about relationships changes by the end of the movie. So he's he's changed more. He's going to keep his job. He's going to go back to the, all these dangerous places and start taking photos, and she's going to go with him. But she is as strong at the start of the movie as she is at the end of the movie, I think. Yeah, she changes her clothes and, I suppose, her reading material, but... They're all kind of superficial changes. Mm. And that picking up that Harper's Bazaar issue is a little wink at the audience. Plus, ultimately, she gets what she wants, which is Jeff. That's right. Yeah. Although, Lord knows why she really wants this guy. Uh, Boom. Thank you. But, you know, I did sympathise with Jeff at the beginning. I, I kind of... Maybe it's because I'm gay and so I'm not swept up in Grace Kelly's sexual attractiveness. Certainly, I can appreciate her beauty. But I really did take the film quite literally. The first scene that she comes in there, she's telling him that, oh, you'd look really good in a blue suit and I can get you fashion work. And she's essentially asking him to become this sort of elitist, shallow sellout like her. She doesn't seem to understand that his work is his passion, that he's doing something real and artistic. She even wants to change the cigarette box. He's got this old Gunji cigarette box. And she's like, I'll get you a new one with Dimentis or whatever the hell. And it's just sort of like, well, I wouldn't like that either. There is a certain suffocation about her. Which is so interesting considering the parallel of Jimmy Stewart's character in Vertigo where he's dressing someone to look Mm. exactly like the person that he wants there to be as well. Which is, it's an interesting... uh, Comparison, I think. And what's interesting as well about the film is that whatever's happening inside Jeff's apartment is always echoed or carried on by what is going on in the courtyard. So, you know, obviously the most obvious is that right before the murder, we get the scene where he essentially ends the relationship with Lisa. Mm. Uh, And then suddenly there's a death. I love her uh, quote as she's walking out the door. Yeah, and it's beautiful, isn't it? Well, when am I going to see you again? for a long time at least not until tomorrow night John Faywell who we're going to hear from later his audio commentary I don't know if either of you had a chance to listen to it but it's brilliant and he's so informed and he he mentions that two things there's a huge misconception that at the start when we get that amazing shot that tells us everything we need to know about James Stewart visually mm-hmm. that he's got a broken leg that he works in photography, that he's dabbled in fashion, all that sort of stuff. Everyone thinks that photo's Grace Kelly. It's not. 
Oh. And I didn't think it was, and I kept reading it was, and he goes, that is not Grace Kelly, by the way. And if anyone knows, this guy would know. This is the one on the wall near the car crash. We see the um, original negative of the photograph, right. and then we see it on the magazine cover. Right. And a lot of people believe that's Lisa. It doesn't look like Lisa. It's not Grace Kelly. And I thought that. And yeah, it, sure enough, it's not. Because she's not a model. She's a buyer or something like that. How is she not a model? The other interesting thing about that he mentions is that the nightgown that Lisa wears during her very, very judged sleepover is the exact same nightgown that Thorwald's wife is wearing. Not close, uh, the exact same nightgown. So we constantly see these reflections in the courtyard yeah. of what's actually happening. John Fawell says it's almost like they know their characters in a movie. I can smell trouble right here in this apartment. First you smash your leg, then you get to looking out the window, see things you shouldn't see, trouble. I like uh, Stella in this movie. She's great. But uh, I really like the way that Jeff seems to have this lack of regard for women and that changes over time. But one of my favourite representations of this is when Stella's talking to him and he's grunting and she says, oh, you're just grunting at me. And she goes to leave. And he calls her name and she kind of turns around and looks and he says, can you just grab me my binoculars? And I really love that scene because it looks like he's going to say something else to her and, you know, allay her fears about just being grunted at. But no. (laughs) (laughs) I read as well about that moment in the film that I think John Fowell said this, that up until then, Jeff has represented the audience because he's just using his eyes. But then when he starts to get out the binoculars and the lens, he becomes a director because he's got the apparatus. Mm. So there's sort of a shift because obviously the film plays with the idea of we are watching someone watching. Mm. Whereas we're, we're watching a screen of somebody watching through a screen. Yeah. So there's this strange kind of, I don't know, follow through, like there's almost a postmodernist type sensibility to the film. Uh, and those kinds of ideas, when those things happen, those shifts, really interesting to kind of consider them. I think one of the really effective things in the film is how he captures the sound of the other apartments. Because you hear the tiniest, minutest little yeah. sounds, but you don't ever really get any dialogue. It's, you know, and it sounds really authentically like he, you're just hearing what Jeff might, have, might hear from that distance. All the sound in the film is predominantly what, how Jeff would hear it rather than what yeah. what the audience is often given you know like like rather than focusing on the audio of what you're actually looking at yeah yeah so that's yeah yeah sound is something that doesn't get spoken about enough in terms of this film like it's very very subtle and very well done and there's no score or no there's no sound you hear that isn't sort of yeah. native to the story that's yeah. that's unfolding. So when you hear music, it's because someone's playing on a recorder somewhere and it's yeah. at a distance. Diegetic sound means the sound is only in the world of, ah. of the thing. It's all natural. I just wanted to read you guys something that Truffaut wrote in his original review of Rear Window. He wrote that it's a film about indiscretion, about intimacy violated at its most wretched moments, a film about the impossibility of happiness, about dirty linen that gets washed out in the courtyard, a film about moral solitude, an extraordinary symphony of daily life and ruined dreams. And what's interesting is that he wrote that review after seeing it in 1954. And then when he came to write his you know, famous book on Hitchcock, 
he had totally changed his mind about the film yeah. and was candid about that and said, I don't see it at all now as, as a cruel and pessimistic film. I actually see it as a, a very optimistic, almost cheerful yeah. thriller. Professor Murray Pomerantz is an author and film scholar in the Department of Sociology at Ryerson University in Toronto. He is the prolific author of more than 30 published works, including An Eye for Hitchcock in 2004 and Alfred Hitchcock's America in 2013. He's a regular contributor to film magazines including Film International, Flow and Senses of Cinema, which, in December 2003, featured an article, Recuperation and Rear Window, which poses the question why, if he wanted to play upon the act of looking, did Hitchcock arrange for his protagonist to be caught up also in recuperation? It's an exhaustive examination of Hitchcock's masterpiece, in which Pomeranz cogently dismantles some of the accepted scholarship surrounding the film, and provides in its place an original reading of Jeff's motivation from a surprisingly personal perspective. I am very pleased to welcome Professor Pomeranz to the show. was that I broke my leg by accident because we had a winter storm in which about 12 inches of ice were laid over the city and everything was coated with a coat of ice like this. And I went out in heavy work boots to the front of the house to do something, to get something out of the car. And I was standing next to the car on the lawn, which sloped a little bit. And because it sloped, I slipped. And when I went up in the air, the heavy work boots were so heavy that it dragged my foot under me. And when I came down, my entire body weight came down on my leg. So I had a double leg fracture. And thank God it was ice. I was lying outside for 45 minutes waiting for the ambulance because the ambulances couldn't come. And even when he came, he was driving at about two miles an hour to get to the um, hospital. So the whole thing was a nightmare. And um, they morphined me and all that. It was great. And then... Uh, had the surgery that night and I woke up and I was in a, a cast knee down and they wanted me out of there, but we had a SARS epidemic. Uh, there was a Rolling Stones concert and there was a SARS epidemic. So no one in the city of Toronto who was near anyone who had contracted SARS was allowed to live without wearing a hospital mask for 10 days. And since I was in a hospital and there was someone in the hospital who had SARS, anyone who was in the hospital had to wear a mask for 10 days. So they sent me home and I was in a hospital mask in my bed upstairs, laid up with my leg on a pillow. And I suddenly thought, if ever I was going to write about Rear Window, this was the time to do it. <laughs> Really, you know, I've written a lot about Hitchcock, but I had always put off writing about that film. And just, it's not that I really wanted to write about that film. I just realized this is too big a coincidence. I can't actually let this go by. I was kind of interested in the idea of recuperation because I was recuperating. But then it suddenly struck me like a lightning flash that although nobody who writes about the film bothers to go into this, Jeff is also recuperating. Because I realized anyone who's got a cast on was like me. And I knew what was going on with me. So, for instance, the idea that um, although the film doesn't say he's on medication, he had to be. Yes. Of he course. There's no way he could be like living his life without being on medication. The agony would have been unbearable. So I'm thinking, oh, well, what would it have been like then? 
if he was on medication and he were recuperating. And then I remembered the Poe um, story, and I wondered, you know, if he was recuperating the way that character is recuperating, what that process, because that process is very, very beautifully and precisely described by Poe. I don't know if you've ever had anything like this. No. But when you, okay, when you come out of it, you don't snap out of it. You come out of it somewhat slowly, like a very slow dissolve that maybe takes, it might take a week or two for the full dissolve. And as you're slowly sliding out of it, as the effects of the anesthetic are wearing out and the drugs are changing in you, the world starts to become increasingly crisp and, and lambent. And you begin to simply love looking at everything. I mean, you've been so cloistered away in a kind of dark internal place. And all of a sudden, there's a world out there, and it becomes fascinating. And I thought, well, wait a minute. This is exactly what's going on with him. <laughs> the world is becoming fascinating. Sometimes people argue, because he's a dirty old, dirty old man and there's some kind of sexual thing, or because he's nosy. So, you know, Stella keeps suggesting to him, you're nosy, you know, nosy Parker, you know, peeping Tom, watch out, you know, it's not good. You're going to get punished in the afterlife, all that kind of thing. <laughs> I think they fail to grasp what's happening. It's not so much that he, I don't think it's so much that he's actually starts out wanting to spy on other people exactly, not on the exact identities of the other people. It's that he's looking at people. People doing things in their everyday. You know, the way you and I are looking at one another now. And, you know, you look at people, they're kind of interesting. You get to look at someone else. You you watch the, their posture. You watch the way they sit. You watch what they do. And you just think, oh, that's, you know, that's nice. You know? And, of course, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah, very simple, Very, very, very simple and beautiful. And then I realized that, of course, this is what film is. I love how you say in your article that a lot of um, scholarship around Rewindow kind of <clears throat> assaults the dignity of Jeff. And one thing that I found really refreshing about the article is that you don't in any way do that. Well, yeah, they make him into a voyeur. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, he gets his rocks off by, by keeping at people doing things he shouldn't be looking at. And I'm thinking, well, should we not? Well, I mean, you have to lay out of this for some, there's a layer you have to lay out of this. And it's that, you, you know, you know that when you watch a movie, you're watching actors, portraying characters. You've got to just go through that for a minute. So now you're, the characters are people for you. You're in a state of rapt engagement. And I ask you, should you not be watching that? I mean, who the hell are you to be inside someone's house watching him brew a pot of coffee? Yes. Yeah, no, of course not. <clears throat> We're not, well, not naturally anyway, and yet we do. It's You wouldn't do it. No. <laughs> but on the other hand, what if I said, well, come here, I want to show you something, and then I showed you a little window in which you could look and watch people you know, making coffee or getting undressed or, well, I, today in class I was just showing my students uh, that clip from Minority Report where the spiders go through the apartment building, and of course Spielberg very cutely puts his camera up on the ceiling. You know, it's a complete homage to rear window. And we see a woman with her two little children, and then we see two young people in the middle of the sexual act, and then we see two middle-aged people fighting to the death in the kitchen, and we see an old man on the toilet. Well, <laughs> 
who the hell do we think we are? <laughs> and why don't we turn away? Why don't we do this? You know, so if he's questionable, well, so are we. Absolutely. Like Hitchcock, I think, you know, in a lot of his work with Truffaut and everything, would talk about how, you know, when he was attacked critically when the movie came out because some people questioned the moral ambiguity of watching and spying. He yeah. said, well, look, it's, it's, it's natural. We're naturally predisposed. And he said, I, I, I guarantee anyone who was in that situation, if they've got an opportunity to look, would look. He kind of felt like the whole thing was a little bit hypocr hypocritical, I think, to sit there and say, oh, well, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do what Jeff does. I would. Yeah, <laughs> me too. If I'm honest, I would. And I have done. I've had those little opportunities and, and I look. The film sometimes compromises you by sometimes you kind of have the feeling you're looking over Jeff's shoulder. Mm. And then there are other moments when that camera comes out into the courtyard and just frames the action. You're not looking over his shoulder. You are peeping. And peeping if anybody's peeping. So there's this whole questionability of, you know, is it okay to watch something? And I think that you have to believe that it is if you love cinema. But then, of course, he designs the frame so that, and this has been said before, many times, that they look like movie screens. So yes. it's like he's watching multiple films. I always think of an airplane. Where you stand in the aisle and you can see 50 films at once. So there's that. What's interesting is that some of the frames are actually designed like cinemascope frames. Thorwalls. Ah, I hadn't um, noticed that. <laughs> it's widescreen. <laughs> Academy ratio. And so he's, he's playing around with the relationship between the cinematic image and the act of looking. I don't really know why anyone would question it. I mean, film is all about the act of looking. We learn by looking. We see by looking. We follow the narration by looking. And, of course, early film, which was Hitchcock's route, really had very little sound, so it was almost entirely looking. I love how everything is designed to remind us that we're looking. Even the sounds that we hear from the apartment, we hear them from Jeff's perspective. You know, they're quite faded and we only catch little glimpses of it. Uh, and I think that's why at the end it's so shocking when Thorwald is finally there in the apartment. You really get that sense of proximity suddenly. Well, you've just made me think that there's a relationship be between rear window and rope because they're both experimental films. You see, in Rope, he was interested in how long you could make a master shot and how few shots you could use to compose a film. But what he's done in Rear Window is to ask himself if you could make an entire film without changing the camera position. Because you know he almost never changes the camera position. I think the only time is at the end when we look down on Jeff hanging, uh, having fallen to the ground. But even when Thorwald comes in, we're still in Jeff's wheelchair now looking at We never leave Jeff's wheelchair. No. So it's the idea of the recuperating body. Like, you, there's no other place to go. You are in this chair, i.e. on this dolly. You reference what is not seen in Rewindow, but what is implied or inferred, and, and the medication is, is part of that. Uh, and I thought that was great because Rewindow is all about what is and is not seen. Because you, you cite an argument as well in your article about how people have said that Jeff's spying is commensurate with the way a, a bureaucratic government would spy on uh, its citizens, which I guess is a part of what, you know, a lot of modern academia have, have discussed that. Do you, do you feel that there's any merit in that? Or do you feel that that's, that's not really what Hitchcock was going for or not really what the film says? I'm trying to get to the, um, the moral, what I call the moral baggage 
implicit in that, well, not so much in your question, but in that floating question that you're picking up, you know, Jeff S. Surveiller, as it were. And the best discussion of that would be rooted in understanding something about surveillance. And in my book, An Eye for Hitchcock, in the chapter on vertigo, I actually talk a great deal about it. So, I mean, it feels like a great deal. It's probably, <laughs> it's probably one sentence. <laughs> um, in the novel, it's explicit. But the element of the novel is removed from the movie. And so one has to find the link to bring it back into the discussion. So what I'm going to do is skip Vertigo and just go to the novel because it's the point you're getting at. So there are those who are keeping watch over the tomb after the crucifixion. Essentially, it's, a, it's an old, I suspect, an old customary activity. It has to do with tomb robbers and wanting to protect the corpse and make sure that the body one feels as a holy body is left to some sacredness. So one is keeping watch over the tomb, survol over. And that's the origin of the word to surveil. To surveil is to watch over, but that's the origin of it. It's a sacred holy act. We flipped it around. So yes, this film's all about surveillance, but in the central meaning of the word. It's all about watching others in order to uh, allow them to be whole and full. How would you feel if you thought no one was ever going to actually look at you? They would only talk to you. For instance, we cut off the picture right now. We just talk to one another. I don't look at you. I don't evaluate anything I see when I look. I don't look at your light switch, your blue shirt, the photographs, the books. I don't look at any of that. I just hear your voice. In fact, not even that. I just read the words on a screen one after the other as you type them out. It's all very coded and informational. But there's no use of the eye. There's no penetration of your sacred optical space. And you never get to look at anyone either. So, for instance, uh, every time you want to have sex with someone, it has to be completely in the dark, and there can be no use of the eye whatsoever. That would be horrible. It would essentially become impersonal. It would be inhumane in a way. That's right. It would be inhumane. Yeah. So here we have somebody who wants to see what other He wants to see other people. Now, it's something I've written recently, but it's not published yet. I talk a lot about um, the curtailed nature of the vision. This is true in all cinema and in life. I mean, you never get to take someone and watch them all the time, everywhere they go, everything they do, and never stop watching them. You only watch pieces. And you tell yourself that you're watching significant pieces and you put them together into what feels to you like a kind of coherent vision of some other person. And, of course, in film, it's all really attenuated because you only get about an hour and a half altogether and you're only, you know, looking at little bits. of. So in this film, he really throws that up, up your nose because he gives you only these tiny fragments of dramatic moments in these other apartments. And Jeff is trying to calculate what's really going on here. The Thorwald one is the explicit one where he actually says, effectively, I think something's going on there. I think I'm getting little bits of evidence of it. I want to figure out what's really happening. And uh, Stella and Lisa both say, oh, you're crazy. Stop it. You know, she just stop it. And then after a while, Lisa leans over and says, oh, that, that's odd. So now she's getting caught up in it. And then Stella gets caught up in it. She picks up the binoculars. So it's all about getting people involved in the mystery. But it only seems like a mystery because you see a tiny little fragment of action and you think – 
something came before it and something's going to come after it that's been cut off by the frame. But then you could look and see that every single one of those apartments is working that way. So it's like a puzzle in a way. And he's like a sociologist, in short, a kind of observer of human behavior who's trying to put together what he sees on the basis of what he already knows about people. Her comment about, you know, a woman would never leave an apartment without her wedding ring. That's a very telling comment. It's not about this woman. It's about the social organization of female identity and jewelry and things like that. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of it that way. And, and that, of course, leads to the incredible moment where she's showing him the wedding ring through the screen that she's got that piece of evidence, which has this sort of double meaning that Truffaut picked up on. It's such a horrible moment. It, yeah, it's... Um, uh, and when Thorwald sees it, I think it's really chilling. I think it also raises another question about film going, which is, an, to me, a really, really intriguing question. And it has to do with our desire to be near the characters, touch the characters, touch their world, inhabit their world. The erotic allure of the visual image and the way it draws us. Because, of course, Hitchcock was... Um, he was just absolutely committed to an image that was seductive and alluring and wonderful. So the amount of time to design the apartment complex and the colors and the look and all that. So we really, that bit really draws us in. We really want to be close to these characters mm. or we want to push them away. We want to have a physical contact with Thorwell. We'd like to push him further away, perhaps even off the roof. <laughs> but, <laughs> And with the others, we, you know, like Miss Torso, she's kind of funny, you know. It's, it might be fun to go and watch her dance up close. Yeah, absolutely. And Miss Lonely Hearts is very sympathetic. I, I always, my heart always breaks for her a little bit when I watch her window. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It'll be okay. Don't worry. Don't <laughs> worry. You know, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Do you, um, do you find Thor to be in any way a sympathetic character? <laughs> Well, maybe only at the very beginning when the wife is hounding him. Mm -hmm. And only marginally. He's a little bit unexpressive. That's true, because we only ever really see him from such a distance. So we, we don't get all those nuances of the face throughout the film till the end. And even then he's in darkness. One of the things for me about, about Hitchcock's genius is his ability to skewer his audience um, and put you in a position that if you were to look at it objectively, you would be revolted at yourself for being in this position. So it's kind of like he implicates you. Okay? Never more so than in Rear Window. I think I could show you that he does it differently in different films, but Rear Window has its, his, has its little tricks. So one of them is this. When Thorwald goes into the apartment, because of the lighting and the flash, what we really notice about him is his eyeglasses. You agree? Absolutely. It's a giant, lumbering, shadowy voice. Raymond Burr had a radio voice. He had a, oh, yeah, he was a trained vocal guy, part of how he got the job. I mean, the, that voice is just chilling. Mm. What do you want from me? But I can't even get it. It's really helpful. <laughs> but you see the glasses, and the flash pops against the glasses, and you see that, I think at one point he takes them off. You know, and, and mm. They're thick lenses, and just for a minute, just for a tiny minute, you say, oh, the poor guy can't see very well. It's not just that Jeff is blinding him. It's that, oh, the poor guy never could see very well. You know? And then you remember, wait a minute, wait a minute, he just hacked his wife up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
oh, the poor guy. Oh, the poor guy can't see very well. It's, it's that Hitchcock brings in those glasses to grab your balls just at the bad moment. And mm. Just at the moment when you're ready to condemn this man, he's got you. <laughs> and indeed, I think that they brought Burr into the sound stage to try on various pairs of glasses to make sure they got it right. That glasses were very important. I loved in your in your article, uh, Recuperation in Rear Window, how you talk about at the at, in that end scene how the two men are, are kind of exposed to each other, see each other as they are, and that they've both either metaphorically or literally decapitated their blondes, their respective blondes. Did I did I imply that Jeff had decapitated Lisa? Did he cut her Did he cut her head off? What did he do to her? Yeah, you did. I think well. That's how I read it anyway. I thought you'd said that, you know, because obviously he's sort of pushing her away for so much of the film. Yeah. And I really like that you didn't, I mean, that's when you... People have a tremendous amount of trouble with that. I know, I know. And they they, they look for a lot of subtext and like you've you've mentioned this arrested sexual development in your story. There's a lot of theory that doesn't gel with me. It's not every explanation on there. I mean, he's definitely so so fucked up he can't get with Lisa. And of course, you know, Hitchcock is no idiot. He brings in no less than Grace Kelly. So like if he can't get with Grace Kelly, there must be something wrong with him. Yeah. And she's dolled up in such a way that every male in the universe and most women just want to embrace her. I mean, she's just the most magnificent thing. And what's with him? Yeah. She's a right. far cry from Midge in Vertigo, as you put in your article. Did I say that? I believe that so. Was, <laughs> that was cruel of me. <laughs> no, Midge has some problems. <laughs> well, wait a minute. You don't like Midge or what? I do, although I'm always bothered by that scene in Vertigo where she's drawn herself in the pose and then she kind of, you know, chastises herself when he leaves. Oh, stupid, stupid. I just, I find her very, uh, I don't know, cloying uh, and just, uh, yeah, I can't quite put my finger on it. But certainly I don't, there's no, she's not, no, there's no fascination for me the way there is with Grace Kelly. She comes into the shot and you're looking at her. She's magnificent. Do you ever see if? A show called Please, Please Like Me. Please Like Me. Yes, that's Austra- he's Australian, isn't he? Comedian? He's- yeah. yeah. Josh Tuffett. Have yes. you ever seen it? Uh, I think I've seen snatches of it. And it may not be, you, you may not have seen enough for me to make my point with it. Um, Mitch just thinks he's wonderful. Mitch is in love with him. And the problem is either A, he doesn't quite see it, or B, he doesn't reciprocate it, or C, he feels her love a little bit strangling. But she really just simply adores him. That's the problem. It's very sad. I think she's quite wonderful, but she's kind of sad. Well, anyway, uh, so Jeff, you know, well, I mean, Jimmy's always got problems with women in Hitchcock movies. <laughs> um, so, because even a man who knew too much, right? I mean, he just won't give his wife another child. I mean, he's just so egotistical. So here, the viewers are all trying to figure out where this guy's deficiency is. I think that's the conventional reading. There's something wrong with Jeff. Are they suggesting that he's gay, that he's got I, – I don't even understand how that, that argument about arrested sexual development. Well, you, gay is one direction. Yeah, he's gay and therefore doesn't know how to get a hard-on for something as incredibly beautiful as this. B, he does know how, except he has the sexuality of a 12-year-old and she's too old for him. He never got past some fantastic, you know, daydream. 
Well, I mean, I'm just being stupid. I know it. I mean, my, so many of my colleagues just think I'm an idiot, so I'll just be an idiot. I just listen to Jeff. He tells us himself what the story is. So why, why should we not believe him? He doesn't seem to be lying about anything else. He just doesn't think she can climb the Himalayas. He's protecting her. Like, you don't want to be with someone like me. I'm going to go out there and get into dangerous places. And look at you with your dresses and your lunch from 21. And like, you don't want to give all this up for, for me. I, I agree with you, Murray. I found that to be the most – that's exactly how I felt about the film. I don't see any uh, sexual de- arrested development subtext in there. I think also everyone talks about Lisa as being this idealized woman. But in the first scene with Jeff, she's, she's replacing his old gungy cigarette case with a brand-new, lacquered, beautiful one. She's wearing this really big evening gown. She's telling him that she wants him to wear a blue suit and to take fashion photographs. She doesn't understand his passion, his joy in life. Um, and then when she develops a sense of adventure and risk is when he, he starts to turn around, essentially when she becomes part of the screen that absorb him so, the relationships that absorb him, as you put in your article, rather than the ones around him in his own apartment. So, And then at yeah. the end of the film, we see her in these kind of adventure-style day wear, and she's reading that Himalayas book, well, pretending to. That's, no, pretending to, but even that is a, is a gift to him. Why yeah. pretend to? So, you know, she's trying to say, okay, I'm going to meet you halfway. Yeah. I'll try your way. And, you know, it is a kind of male dominance, him needing her to be his woman rather than allowing himself to be her man. But on the other hand, she looks, I mean, it's not that simple. She really looks fantastic in the blue jeans with the penny loafers. And she looks like she's having a blast. Yes. Yeah, she looks, I think she looks more beautiful there in a way than anywhere else. I mean, I know that first shot's lauded, but I just love how relaxed she looks in that last shot. Well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think I think you're picking it up. The trick is to read Hitchcock very, very strictly, very strictly, like a divinity student studying biblical text. Mm. Leave nothing out. It's all intentionally there. So he's not throwing away the ending of the film. The ending is the, is the key to the riddle. I think a lot of people tend to, because the films are so looked at, sometimes you can kind of analyze your way out of kind of any kind of uh, what's in the frame. Everything that Hitchcock does is very, very controlled. Yeah, very thought anyway. Yeah. And I really, really, I came to your article just very, very appreciative of the fact that you didn't (laughs) reach for all of these ideas in the dark, that you used what was there to kind of work out what's going on with Jeff with regard to Lisa. That's really sweet of you to say, because I see that's philosophically very important to me that one not, I mean, that one doesn't, you don't bring out toolkit from the dark and then start forcing the tools onto the film. You start with the film and then make whatever tools you need. I mean, he did make the film first. So, like, what's in the film, you know? Like, even if you look at um, Thelma Ritter, she's really swank. I mean, she's got these lovely dresses. She's a swank character. She always says what she means. And yet, at the same time, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have the script of it sitting beside me, but... She tells him some stories about another one of her patients that she massages who got into trouble peeping at people or something. I, I think I'm right. Yeah, she does tell a story about, about something happening back home where someone had done that or, or that she'd, she can, it's when she's giving that speech about she can sense trouble coming. Yeah, so she's a bit of a gossip. Mm. <laughs> but she's a great character. I love her in that film. Sure you do. But she is a bit of a gossip, giving him a lecture not to be a peeping Tom. 
Look, he makes his money as a photographer, for fuck's sake. I mean, this guy looks at the world and frames it into pictures. and makes He makes great pictures. Mm. Well, so what is the big sin for him in looking at people? Do you think if Jeff had been under house arrest or if he'd been cooped up writing a novel that he would have still looked out that window? Uh, that's a really smart question. Hitchcock's genius is that we need to see all of this from a man in a wheelchair. It's not just a man in an apartment looking out his window. It's a disabled man, temporarily disabled man, who's quite used to actually being physically vital. You know you saw all that at the beginning. Mm. You mean that, his whole backstory in that one shot? The photograph of the tire wheel coming at you was the tire wheel that has put him into the wheelchair. That was the accident. He managed to click the shutter, and then he was knocked out of it. Right. So this guy goes into the middle of the track to get his shot. I mean, he's a guy who, he moves around, and now they've removed that from him. He can't move around. He keeps telling Lisa that, you know, his life is a vital one, and she doesn't really believe it. But the evidence is right there. I mean, you have to understand that there's something contradictory to that which most viewers, certainly most viewers in your age group, they would just buy into it and they would be trapped by it. It's the fact that we see films now in a very kind of non-aggressive and non-athletic way. I mean, we sit in a plush seat, we pay money and incorporate, you know, liquor and 75 gallons of Coca-Cola. We sit there, you know, the movie just comes, or we look at movies on the internet like we're doing now. So we just sit in our happy little seats without, but Jeff goes out into the world goes to a dangerous place, puts his camera, opens the lens, and does something that's really uh, self-jeopardizing. It's really risk-taking. Yeah, and I suppose that's why, well, being unable to move about himself, he's drawn to watch at least others move. It's sort of... Try to imagine if you, were, if you had broken your leg, what it would be like for you to watch that woman dance. What Hitchcock is doing is he's throwing out a kind of a doggy bone to you. She sticks her ass in your face in a way that the only other the only other time you've seen it was Tinkerbell and Peter Pan. <laughs> She's trying to pull open the dresser drawer and look in the dresser drawer to see where Peter's shadow is. Her ass is sticking in her face. <laughs> so it's, essentially, uh, Georgina Darcy was sort of just doing that with short, short jeans and the T-shirt. And she's doing, she's practicing to this really jazzy dance routine. And the legs are going way up in the air, and she's twisting around. And he's looking at this. You can see he's dumbfounded by it. But he's also incapacitated, so it's wonderful to see this kind of frozen quality. And then he's watching her. You know, it's, it's very interesting. Or, you know, the kids next door, you know, the newlyweds. They're pretty funny. I think the film seems to take this really dim view of marriage. Uh, oh, really? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we have... Jeff's reluctance to get married, but then we also have Thorwald and his wife and where that goes, her nagging him. Then we have the newlyweds come in and he's so tired of having sex with her and he, he hates having, you know, she's always calling his name and he has to go over there. I, I don't know if there's any other ones, but it just seems to be like a recurring idea, this idea that once it's written in black and white, that things go pear-shaped. I could be wrong, though. That might just be somehow the film personally struck me. I think it's a fish hook in the water. I just don't know if it's the right one. I think I think he put the bait there. I always think with the newlyweds, it's not that he doesn't want to have sex with the wife. It's a little tiny mini essay on young male and young female sexual hunger and capacity. It's that when he 
finishes, he's kind of out of it for a long while, where <laughs> she's ready to bounce right back. Yeah. <laughs> so she's, as it were, insatiably hungry, and he didn't realize that was going to happen. Like, he thinks he's a he-man, but, you know, he'll never keep her happy. <laughs> yep. Mari, I'm really conscious of the fact that I've almost taken an hour of your time, so I'll just ask a couple of final questions if you don't mind. I wanted to know what your favorite Hitchcock film is or if you kind of are averse to giving that. Oh, no. I mean, my personal favorite Hitchcock film is The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is the one I've just published a BFI Classics book about. Right. Is that the James Stewart version or the one before that? That's right. James Stewart version. Yeah. That is great. And that's just, it's personal. So it just has to do with my life circumstances and when I saw it. And I wouldn't say it's the greatest Hitchcock film. It's just my favorite. That's funny. I think my favorite, I vacillate between The Birds and Vertigo, but I really wouldn't want to say, I'd I'd say the same as you. I'd I'd probably preface it by saying that I don't necessarily know that they're the best films, but they're the ones that I most enjoy. And uh, Murray, can you tell us what you're working on at the moment? I just last week finished a manuscript for a book called The Dream of Hitchcock, which is a sequel to An Eye for Hitchcock. And it's about six films that I don't write about in the other book. And I was taking one week off. I'm in the middle of taking one week off. And then starting next week, I'm going to write about pleasure. Pleasure in cinematic terms? Yeah. Or? yeah. Oh, that sounds excellent, Murray. I'll have to look out for both of them because I very much enjoyed your article. Well, you might like to have an eye for Hitchcock. I mean, it would open a lot of doors, but it's not a window, but it has got vertigo. Murray, I can't thank you enough for fitting us in. As I said, I know you're really, really busy and it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. I'm totally charmed. Thank you for having me. Flanders is leaving the house. I want you to sneak in there and bring me back some evidence. And something sweet for later. Bart, I'm here for you, but I'm not going to break it in somebody's house. All right, you're right, you're right. Let's let's just forget about that. Here, let me read to you from my play. <clears throat> Kept us for breakfast, Aunt Helga. Is it St. Swithin's Day already? Tis, replied Aunt Helga. I'm going, I'm going. It's funny you mentioned during the introduction about the Simpsons episode, which I'm sure we've all seen many times. Uh, that sinister looking kid is looking at me again. <laughs> so that was 1994. It was called Bard of Darkness. I can't remember what season, five or six or it's, something. I want to say five. It's such a fantastic homage to Rear Window. It's so great. So good. spoken about how we think this is the quintessential Hitchcock film and I totally agree Vertigo is my would be number two or three of my favourite films of all time Vertigo is universally accepted critically and it went up on AFIs it it knocked uh, Citizen Kane off of uh, Sight and Sound it's universally accepted as critically his best movie now Mm. and yeah Citizen Kane was number one for 50 years on Sight and Sound's poll in the most recent one which was five years ago Vertigo is number one and uh, Vertigo, I think, is the only Hitchcock film that's been in the top ten. And, you know, Vertigo and Psycho are enhanced so much by Bernard Herrmann's scores. I mean, they just put them over the top for me. The minute that Vertigo starts and you hear that kind of really rich, decadent orchestral sounds, it's just so stirring and romantic and dark. I love it. And Vertigo is the most 
indulgent, I think, of Hitchcock's films, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I think it's the kind of thing where he goes, you know what, I'm going to fucking go down this path. I'm going to go as bizarre as it, as it gets. That film is so screwed up in, yeah. in so many ways, but it's just so beautiful, it's so sprawling, it's so epic. And James Stewart, the intensity of his longing and grief and despair in that film, I think it's one of his finest performances. The only moment in that performance I hate is when he falls off the stepladder. <gasps> it's just a bit overdone but everything else is wonderful it's so funny that we all agree that Rear Window is probably the film that we would show people yeah. who hadn't seen Hitchcock is that right? yeah and yeah it's not none of our favourite movies and it's probably not you know in the top three or so for any of us not for me no not for me either Maybe it would feature in the top three of the films we thought were the best ones, but not our favourite ones. And that often happens with kind of film nerds. You know, you go through everything and then for whatever reason you have, you develop your favourites and it's not intellectual. It's just something you're drawn to. Should we do our favourites? All right, why not? Uh, Well, my top three are Rebecca and North by Northwest and The Lady Vanishes. I don't know the order, but I would say Rebecca, Vertigo, North by Northwest... Weirdly enough, though, Psycho is the one that I would rewatch most of the time. Uh, my favourites are Vertigo and I, I can never remember the title of it. Thank you, Shadow of a Doubt. I don't know why I can't remember that movie title. I just have a block. It's such a good title, too. I know. Uh, and, uh, and probably switching between the birds and Psycho as a third. Yeah. Yeah. Do you agree that The Birds is the last good Hitchcock film Honestly, I'm not too familiar with the films that came after The Birds, but I really do enjoy Marnie, which was a year after The Birds. Um, Definitely the last great one. If you cut off after The Birds, you could say you've seen all the Hitchcock you need to see. But Frenzy has some real merit as well. I want to talk a bit about The Courtyard because there's been a lot of interpretations about what The Courtyard is and what it might mean. Hitchcock himself said that it's like an index of human behaviour. Murray Pomerantz in her interview said that it's like a department store where everything's divided but these different departments interrelate. Uh, John Faywell in the audio commentary, I really liked his description of it, a series of silent films because we all know Hitchcock was above all else a visual filmmaker and began in the silent era. Truffaut in his original review said that it's a film about indiscretion and about intimacy violated at its most wretched moments. For me, all of the stories seem to relate to the idea of marriage or at the very least love. We have Miss Lonely Hearts and there's a real emptiness there and a real sadness. We have Miss Torso who's entertaining all these men. She's almost like I imagine... Uh, Miss Lonely Hearts before she became Miss Lonely Hearts. Like, it kind of shows the sort of sad trajectory of, of a woman's life, those two those two characters. Then we have the newlyweds move in, and she's constantly... At first, it's really happy, and he walks her into the apartment, and then it's suddenly, like, a, starting to become a kind of nagging. Well, throughout most of the movie, the blinds closed. Because they're fucking. Because they're having sex. That's right. And then we have the uh, pianist, and that's... Interestingly, more about artistic frustration because he's just forever working on this song that he can't finish. He is, but he's also in... I mean, there's a reason he's matched up with Miss Lonely Hearts at the end of the movie is because he's feeling a lot of the same stuff. He's, he's got this room full of people, but he hasn't got anything personal. Yeah, and ultimately, of course, it's his song that saves Miss Lonely Hearts in her yeah. lowest moment. I think Miss Lonely Hearts thing could be a film in itself. That is so fucking sad. It's definitely the most emotive and powerful of the 
courtyard stories. And the uh, reactions when um, uh, Jeff and Lisa are watching her th- when she gets that young man that comes in, yeah. and then when he starts being quite forceful with her, that's one of the times where like they can understand that they're becoming voyeuristic to the point of yeah. being detrimental. Like they both look really uneasy and really upset at the fact that they've witnessed this. That's the darkest moment in the film, mostly because Jeff and Lisa don't contact the police. They're yeah. too transfixed on Thorwald and you're waiting in the back of your mind. There's this other crisis yeah. happening that they're not addressing. Mm. Uh, that's when it gets really dark. It's also a very clever misdirection as well, yeah, which he is a master at. But like the fact that you're worried about that, you kind of, lose a little bit of the weight of the Thorwald stuff, but they're still captivated on that. But you are so worried about her. I thought of, like, what I guess would be considered a plot hole, but I don't know if it is, and not that I care, because it's a thriller and they're supposed to be absurd at times, but he looks through his lens a thousand times during the film. Why didn't he ever take a photo? All of that, all of that could be evidence. Didn't he take a photo of the flowers? And that's how he proves yeah, that yeah. the flowers have been wow. ripped. Take a photo of anything that Thorwald's doing. Because it, it's always his story going against... But what would he take the photo of? I mean, what would be, what yeah. would be a photograph that would prove anything? Oh, he's, he's carrying a suitcase. Wouldn't also, he just be taking photos? Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's a photographer. <laughs> but also, and I know he is a photographer, but camera film is a finite resource and you know it's never explained that he has tons of it laying around in his apartment and he can't go and get any more i mean it could have been if they went down that route that stella brings him some camera film which was readily accessible in the 1950s would have film around i think they probably would but maybe he didn't have a lot of it but you would think this would be important enough for him to take some you don't want to waste film on a murder (laughs) (laughs) um but just getting back to that scene where miss lonely hearts brings home the young guy and they kind of close the blinds but you could just see a little bit through the gap of the blinds Mm. and that shot is done so brilliantly yeah, to to allow us to continue to watch it without really watching it, mm-hmm. and it, it um, I mean, if they'd left the blinds open, we would have felt even more culpable in this, what is essentially an assault, watching yeah. it. But it, they've closed the blinds a little bit, so you still get that feeling, and it's still a really quite horrible feeling that he's trying to essentially force himself upon her, but you're not seeing it as graphically as you would, and it amplifies the idea that they shouldn't be watching this. Yeah. And because your vision is obscured of that moment, it makes it more terrifying because, you know, it basically comes back to that basic tenet of cinema, which is you so effectively at the beginning of Jaws, it's what you don't see. What your imagination has to kind of insert is what, where, where real terror comes because we don't know exactly how bad that assault is getting. Don't you think that the film plays with kind of dark fantasies that we all have as people. I mean, have you guys ever just been walking down the street? I don't like where this is going. (laughs) And, you know, maybe you're walking along a bridge and you look down and imagine that you see a corpse stranded in the reeds. Or, like, don't you ever have, like, if you're honest, don't you ever have dark thoughts about finding something, discovering something, seeing something? I don't hang around a lot of reeds, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, it does. I think it speaks a lot more to human nature than um, than people would like to admit at times. I can't tell you how many times, almost every single time I go to the ocean, and often I say it to the person that I'm with, I just want to see a shark attack. 
Yeah, this is why I don't go to the ocean with Luke anymore. I don't have to really imagine that I have this uh, third floor apartment I can see right into people's houses. It's so strange. And it's fantastic, but I do. I mean, if they leave that window open, I'll look right in. Just because I know you can't see, I will just explain that Damien lives on the second story of an apartment and he has this extraordinary view of so many homes across the street. It's like this long, giant vista of different places and we do see people come and go and... And Damien's quite voyeuristic, I think it's fair to say. He often sits out there. I use the balcony a lot. Creepily watches people. <laughs> Damien is what I think the police call a predator. If anyone out there like listening to this wants to kind of see where we record these podcasts, I can almost do... A, maybe I'll do like an Instagram story. We are on Instagram now. I could do a story of... Uh, uh, just not your, like... I thought you were about to invite them to my apartment, Cameron. <laughs> yeah. All are welcome. Oh, yeah, of course you are welcome. If you listen to us, yeah, you're welcome. John Faywell is an associate professor in the Department of Humanities at the College of General Studies at Boston University. He's written extensively about film and is the author of four books, including Hitchcock's Rear Window, The Well-Made Film, published in 2001. In 2008, John provided the audio commentary track on Universal's remastered DVD release of the film, which was carried over for the 2012 Blu-ray release. We're very happy to welcome him to the show. Thanks for joining us, John. Welcome. I just wanted to say that listening to your audio commentary, it's very obvious that you know this film inside out. And it's almost, uh, in parts, it's it's a statistical analysis of the film. Um, Can you describe for us your relationship with Hitchcock and with Rear Window in particular? Well, I've always loved Hitchcock, but for the same reason you've you've decided to focus on this film in your program, I I chose to write on it. I think it's a near-perfect little film. And, uh, you know, I remember the first time I saw it, it occurred to me you could write a book on it. <laughs> so I did, you know. So it's it's the uh, the only film of Hitchcock. Well, I have an article on um, stage fright as well. But other than that, I've only written on uh, Rear Window uh, in terms of Hitchcock because I write widely on film and other subjects too. But Hitchcock himself is a lifelong interest of mine as well. When you were uh, approached to record the audio commentary in 2008, can you give us an idea of what that experience was like and how that came about? Oh, Universal Studios knew about my book and they called me and and wanted me to do it. They found me a studio. It was a rush thing. I'm always amazed at how little time they give you to do these things. You know, I, I always expected to have several days to really work it out. I had about four hours, <laughs> maybe less, to hammer that. But... Um, it was a gas. I loved it. I mean, I, I would do that all day long if I could just sit there and comment on the images they fly by. And if you haven't, uh, if any of our listeners haven't listened to the audio commentary, it is available, as I said, on the DVD and the Blu-ray. Um, there's a fantastic box set called the Hitchcock Masterpiece Collection, which includes 14 movies of Hitchcock's. I think in the US you get a 15th movie, but over here in Australia okay. we're not so lucky. Um, but uh, yeah, that, uh, the audio commentary that John's recorded is on there. What's the 15th film that you I, get? I believe in the USA added North by Northwest, which is uh, uh, which is a Warner Brothers rather than a Universal. But maybe the distribution was different in the US. I'm not sure. Okay. okay. During this episode of the podcast, we discussed the idea that Rear Window is the quintessential Hitchcock movie and that if we found someone who'd never seen a Hitchcock film, this one in particular would be the best way to introduce them to the director's work. And we come to that conclusion partly because it's easily accessible, but also because it features a lot of the Hitchcock trademarks while remaining artistic. And you even state in your commentary that Jeff is a lot like Hitchcock. He's not very active physically, but he's very active mentally. You describe Rear Window as a perfect film. 
Do you think it's the easiest jumping in point for people who haven't seen Hitchcock? Well, it depends on it. You know, I don't know. You know, if I show it to my students, they like Psycho more. People who really don't know Hitchcock, well, they find Psycho more entertaining. Uh, Rear Window Strikes, the modern viewer, is a bit static. Um, North by Northwest has all those James Bond elements that appeal. Um, either of those could be seen as more accessible. Certainly, and the aficionados, of course, are gaga about uh, Vertigo, yeah. you know, but I, that strikes me as, as a, a refined taste, right? Um, I, I, I do. I think it's. A, I think it's a great entry. I do. I agree with you. I think it's a great entry. I, I think they, there might be a few more that other uh, people who don't know Hitchcock find entertaining, but I think in terms of encompassing the Hitchcock universe, I agree with you. It, it really hits a lot of bases. And I think it's the kind of movie that if somebody was to watch it, not having seen any of his work, they would want to seek out his other work. And I think there's a lot of people who would, you know, see Vertigo, for instance, which is the critic's darling. And um, they would find that a little bit harder to digest, and they might, they might say, "Oh, oh yeah. yeah, I might not go and see another movie by Hitchcock." It's a strange, it's a strange film for someone who doesn't know, you know, out of context. It's languorous, and it, it doesn't have that nice sense of humor that uh, Window has. And that, you know, it, it, I, I think that the, the screenwriter on Rear Window, John, is it John Michael Hayes or Jeffrey Michael, Michael Hayes? I always get that confused, but um, I think he has a nice buoyancy to Hitchcock's script that you don't get in a lot of his other films. To Catch a Thief, City Two, and uh, Man Who Too Much, I think, are those his too. He, he was he worked well with his show. Really, very interesting. You draw parallels between Jeff's window on a movie screen, and between yeah. Jeff watching out the window and the audience watching a movie. And this will come up later as well. But Hitchcock makes a point of emphasizing the ethics of this kind of visual eavesdropping throughout the movie, and it seems like maybe Hitchcock enjoyed questioning his audience in this way. Oh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of that, some of the dialogue is explicit about this, about why people look in, why people um, go to films, and what are they looking for, and um, there's all the all the things you look for in a, a cinema. In those windows across the way, you have suspense films, you have violence, you have you know cheesecake, you have little you know Miss Torso's window, you have all the all the lascivious things you're looking for in a theater. Um, yeah, he's he's constantly mocking the audience in that film for why they've come why they've come to a Hitchcock film. You know, what, what, what's behind their desire to see films that deal with sex and violence like this? And he's got, um, I guess there's a parallel here between Rear Window and Psycho. He's got uh, Jeff looking at somebody else uh, performing a murder, whereas in Psycho he's got us in the point of view uh, watching Marion in the shower before essentially the person that's viewing that scene murders Marion. Yeah, I think the two films are they have a lot in common, and it's, I don't. I think these are his films that have them spend the most time with a first-person camera. You, you, they're, they're in many ways his quietest films, but um, certainly I think in terms of just sheer percentage of times in which you are the camera, Psycho and Rear Window. I think that's why you know many they're good nominations for his two greatest films. The, the identification between the viewer and the camera is strongest in those two films. Why is there a point made of letting the audience know the action is happening during a heat wave? I think that's old-fashioned theater, isn't it? That's just good unity. It's um, it all takes place in a couple of days when things are boiling. You know, when when the, when the when the action has been resolved, the heat wave is gone. It's it's just a sense of uh, you know, it's got it. One of the things that makes it a great film is its sense of unity. It takes place in one place. You look with through you know more or less through one person's point of view, and it takes place over just a couple of days. And the heat wave correlates to this mounting tension. That everybody in that complex seems to experience, Jeff, but all the also the neighbors. The neighbors are all kind of acting strange too, you know. And the composer, he's having quite a bad time. So there's this kind of mounting tension, and it bursts with the finale of the film, and then it 
cooler. <laughs> so I think that's just that's old that's old fashioned theater. Yeah, and I guess also the heat wave explains why a lot of people have their windows open. Uh, it it yeah. is easy for Jeff to watch it in, in this uh, heat wave because yeah. everybody's at the window. Everybody's got their window open. It's an it's amazing film for being you know it's, if you look at that set realistically, it's incredibly implausible. Yeah, but it doesn't feel that way when you watch the film. It, he 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 gets just enough plausibility to make you buy the whole thing, including that little that little restaurant in the left corner of the screen, you know, that's going to serve for the outside world. And a lot of things happen there. <laughs> you know, it's amazing, isn't it, when Miss Lonely Heart goes out to dinner, she goes to the one restaurant that we can actually glimpse from Jeff's window, you know. So the whole thing has, it's, it's a ridiculously implausible set, really. But um, it doesn't feel that way. Everything makes sense. And, um, yeah, it does explain a few things, like why the old couple is sleeping out on their fire escape and that kind of thing. I'm not sure it explains why Miss Torso dances, you know, so largely in her window. I don't think you can explain anybody <laughs> exhibiting themselves quite that freely. But <laughs> um, I think it also makes the, um, you know, you've got all of these open windows, and when a window becomes closed, for instance, when Miss Lonely Hearts brings home the younger gentleman, and uh, she she puts down the the shutters, but you can still peek through them just a little bit, and so I think it exemplifies that action that you are now looking at something that is supposed to be more private than it actually, but I mean, you can still see it, but it's supposed to be more private. She's made a point of closing her windows. Yeah. I think he's very savvy about how much he lets you see here and there and it's enough to make it plausible. And there's a lot to see if you look really closely. It may take several viewings to see little things like that when Lars Thorwald lies down, there's a little bottle of some kind of uh, stuff that was used to, uh, do God knows what to his wife's corpse in the bathtub and those kind of there's a lot of little things left for you to just to squint and peek around and find for yourself, you mm. know. But you're right, he blocks you here and there to give the to heighten the sense of voyeurism and to heighten, heighten the you know reality of what it would be like to peek in on your neighbors and so forth. It, for a film that's obviously a studio film, one of the things I talk about in my book is it really conveys that the feeling of neighborhood, the, you know, the feeling of the way people look at each other in neighborhoods, and the the way people are perceived through their their windows, and the way we feel when we look when we peek through windows, it's it's amazing. It's got a lot of verisimilitude for a film that's so obviously fabricated in a studio. You say every time you go back to it, you notice new things. How many times have you seen Rear Window? Oh, I have no idea anymore. <laughs> and I scenes all the time to my students, so it all and I, I speak to people and show scenes, so. I don't, too, too, you know, too many. <laughs> too many. There's a misconception that the photograph of the woman in the fashion magazine at the beginning is Lisa, uh, and uh, I kept reading that it was and was glad to hear you clarify this in your commentary. It doesn't stop people from making that mistake over and over again. It's, uh, I've, been to, I've, seen, I've seen it written in articles. I've seen it, you know, at conferences. It's hilarious. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things that takes on uh, takes on legend no matter what the accuracy is. It seems to it, they really like. It seems to really be open to the symbolism that there's some dark attitude towards Lisa that's reflected in that photo. You know, I might comment a little bit on the fact that she wants him to be a fashion photographer, and you've done some of that. You know, Hitchcock had strong relationships with women through his camera. Obviously, he could glamorize them and sexualize them, objectify them, violate them. Can you discuss your theory that people across the courtyard are reflections of Jeff's own situation, particularly his predicament with Lisa in respect to Miss Torso here, and that Jeff projects himself into the apartments of the people he's watching? Oh, I think, yeah, I think he does. I mean, 
you know, that, and I'm not the only one who thinks that. I mean, this is the way this has been standard in Hitchcock criticism for a long time. That it's almost look at those windows as thought bubbles from Jeff's head. I mean, at the very beginning, when he's he's watching um, Thorwald come home, and he's saying, uh, "Can't you see me coming home to the electric dishwasher and the nagging wife?" And you're watching Thorwald do that, and the mm-hmm. and the wife is dressed in a in a negligee that is a, a, a double for the one Lisa will wear later on. So it's not only Jeff envisioning himself being married, but the, the wife miraculously looks like the woman he would get married to. It, it starts to like almost become surreal. My students often explain that this old, this middle-aged salesman, why does he have this young wife? Why, what kind of invalid is this young wife? I mean, she looks a lot like Lisa. Mm. So it's almost makes more sense symbolically than it does realistically that this blonde woman would be in that that, that invalid would be in that bedroom because she's kind of a double for Lisa. So all the windows operate that way. You can you can play games with each of them and find Jeff and Lisa. Jeff and Lisa later on have conversations where they both compare Lisa to Miss Lonely Hearts, uh, to Miss Torso. You know, Lisa sees herself in Miss Lonely Hearts' window. Jeff sees her in Miss Torso's window. Lisa says, no, that's not to me, but she is like me. And I mean, they literally put themselves in those windows. And Hitchcock plays all sorts of games where... I mean, he, he, he made sure that Miss Lonely Hearts is wearing green towards the end to kind of echo Lisa's green outfit. A lot of the jewelry the women wear are Lisa's. The handbags are very almost all red red leather handbags. It's, he gets into minute details. So he wants Jeff and Lisa just to be splayed all over that. And, like, um, and that, that works psychologically like they're, they're representations of Jeff and Lisa's situation, but it's also that's good old-fashioned theater too, unity. You know, everything that comes into the compass of this film ties into the story, expresses, you know, that's one of the things that makes this a great film is it has, it's so knotted beautifully at the center in Jeff and Lisa's apartment, but all these uh, trajectories come out of that apartment too. Um, I think uh, one of the my favorite ones, and I hadn't noticed it, well, I hadn't, I guess, consciously noticed it before, is that uh, there's the scene where Miss Lonely Hearts is entertaining her imaginary gentleman, and so she's setting the table, and she's then, um, she's sitting down, she's having a glass of wine, and in the background, Lisa's doing exactly the same, but Jeff chooses to toast Miss Lonely Hearts across the way. Yeah, uh, which is really comical, because that, that's... You know, Jeff has all these strong relationships with women across the way. He's all these fantasy women, mm. you know. I mean, he feels bad for Miss Lonely Hearts. He lusts after Miss Torso. He, he wants to save Mrs. Thorwald. And meanwhile, he takes for granted the one real woman in his life, the one who would like him to do all these things. She can't even get him to make out with her when she's on his lap, you know. So then that's a little, that's Hitchcock commenting on a lot of things, on human preference for fantasy over reality, the way men choose fantasy over reality, the way we do when we go to the cinema. Um, himself, you know, and you know, he lived his much more, much more he, he lived in a sense romantically more intensely through a camera than he did in real life, mm-hmm. which he was very conscious of. At one point, somewhere near the making of her window, he made the point that he, he, he could be very frank in a joking way, and he said, at this point in my life, my legs are purely vestigial, right? So he said, I only exist from the waist up. So... You know, that's a real good parallel to Jeff right there. <laughs> um, I mean, getting back to that, I mean, Jeff Jeff actually says Lisa's not what he, he wants at several times, and Stella asks, is what you want something you can discuss, which seems to suggest yeah. that there's something wrong with Jeff or there, there's a sexual problem, which um, obviously in the 1950s may have not been able to be discussed. But um, can you give us your thoughts on this? Oh, I'm trying to remember the dialogue. You mentioned that. There's some other ones, too. Both Jeff and Lisa, 
mm. often poke at him, suggesting that there's something strange, weird about it that he can't respond to. And, and the audience feels similarly. I mean, this is Grace Kelly on his lap, and he's not interested. He's, so I think, yeah, I think that's, you know, or Lisa or Stella at one point, she takes his temperature and says, makes some joke about how, you know, he's got no, no body heat or something. They're always making fun of him of being kind of unsexual. And I think, I, I think that is, I, I think there's a commentary on, you know, men living in fantasy over reality, men being, you know, having a, 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 a kind of an unhealthy fantasy life leading to a degraded physical life. And I think tying it into cinema and our own tendency to go to the, to live in a world of fantasy and to watch rather than do, you know. Not that I think that's the entire film. I don't think it's just a condemnation of film going. I don't think so at all, you know. But, um, he has some fun with it. He has some fun with that subject. The, the way the, maybe he's saying, "You're no better than me. You love to live in fantasy too." And it's funny that he can make a film that does have that commentary, but is so much damn fun to watch as well. <laughs> I know. Yeah, and, and and I also think sometimes people only think of Hitchcock as being sadistic and making fun of us and teasing us for or calling us out on our voyeurism, but. His camera is a very searching, sensitive, attentive camera. It's a lovely, it's a very serious film, and it's a lovely study of the way people are alone in a populated place, and he's very alive to the sights and sounds of loneliness. And um, there's, you know, Jeff does come out of the window in the end. You know, there is a kind of a positive notion that you have to leave your window, you have to live. You know, ultimately, it's, he's powerless against Larry Thorwell with his, it's comical that he tries to defend himself with a camera. That's not going to work very well, you know. You have to live beyond the camera. I think there are constructive ideas in the film. I don't think it just stops at being morbid and making fun of us. Yeah, and obviously at the end, he's he's back in exactly the same place he started. He's in a he's in a worse position though because he hasn't just got one week to go. I mean, that's that's Hitchcock's sense of humor, and I think that the the end of this movie just is so brilliant with that. I mean, it's I think it's the the funniest scene that's he's well, one of the funniest scenes he's ever done. Very ambiguous and very funny and. Yeah, if he's got two broken legs, and as you say, he's worse than ever, then where does that put him in his marital situation? He does, he's not wearing a wedding ring. He, he seems more trapped than ever. Yeah. Um, everybody feels, of course, they've made a lovely compromise, and she's wearing, you know, casual clothes so this, and reading a book about the Himalayas, so it's suggesting they've met halfway, and we've seen her be, him be impressed by her, um, you know, her adventurousness. But he does have two broken legs, and I don't see any wedding ring. And the And the... The young, the honeymooners are starting to fight <laughs> across the way, so not everything is well in that apartment complex at the end of the film. Yeah. You state that there's a, um, when Thorwald is down in the garden, uh, that you state the more domestic, the more normal the character is, the more likely Hitchcock was to think he had a hidden criminality. Uh, and in fact, you state when Thorwald takes a nap that Hitchcock makes his killers so human. I think that, and that's, I think I'm not alone in that. I think it's a fairly common observation that one of Hitchcock's um, strengths was to find very sympathetic and, if not normal, often sympathetic people to make his villains. And, he, you know, and sometimes more sympathetic. If you ever watch Notorious, I mean, people feel, you can feel a lot more sorry for Claude Rains than you do Cary Grant or James Mason in North by Northwest. Sometimes they're puppy sick lovers, you know. You know, so he, or sometimes he just makes him incredibly normal, like the killer in Frenzy. He's got a nice uh, flower box in front of each window that he tends. In fact, like Lars Thorwald, he's a gardener, mm. you know, so yeah. And that is, there, that's a big Hitchcock idea that, um, 
you know, normality is not to be trusted. And in fact, quite often, normality is a, a front of the, the abnormal. The, the more normal it is, the more you have to wonder why are they putting on such a normal front. A Shadow of a Doubt is another film. It's a study in small town America, everything's squeaky clean, and what, what's underneath, you know. Policemen, one of his major, one of his recurrent themes is uh, crossing guards, policemen who help children across the street. And he, he loves these images of small towns and, and you know, idyllic uh, communities, and then he likes to find what's underneath. It's something, you know, it's something uh, David Lynch, who's a big Hitchcock fan, picked up on. I think that's a, a tributary of Hitchcock that he does rather nicely in his film. Thor World was modelled after uh, David O. Selznick, who was it's um, great. yeah, and uh, Hitchcock uh, dressed him like Selznick and uh, gave him mannerisms similar to Selznick, and picked an actor who had physical traits that were similar to Selznick as well. Could oh. you, have you looked into that relationship too much, Selznick and Hitchcock? Well, that again, there's a lot on that out there, and um, it's a famous relationship. Selznick annoyed everybody. You know, Selznick is the quintessential interfering producer and, and uh, thought he could save every film and shape every film. And he was tailor-made to drive Hitchcock nuts because Hitchcock is, of course, you know, one of the few directors who really required complete independence. And so the, their correspondence is, is interesting, and Hitchcock played a lot of games to make sure Selznick couldn't get to his film. Hitchcock was one of those breed of filmmakers who was very good at cutting his film so there wasn't much left over for anybody else to do do anything with. You know, you, that's, Ford would be good at that, too. You, They thought ahead of Lubitsch, too. They cut this stuff so no producer, there's nothing a producer could do. You know, they had to cut in their head ahead of time. And as soon as he got could get away from Selznick, he did. Selznick brought him over to state from London to make Rebecca. Mm. And uh, Selznick, you know, helped his career quite a bit, but drove him nuts. But he did everybody else. So this was good payback, and it must have been funny because... People in Hollywood would have recognized that gesture where you walk, he's walking around. You can picture a big-time producer walking around with it, the, the phone cradled in his shoulder, holding the rest of it, you know, walking around his office. That was, that was a, a famous Selznick posture. Even if it's just a subtle dig that most people watching the movie aren't going to understand, it's, it's, it's fun for people, those, those little bits of trivia that are inherent throughout most Hitchcock movies, but it seems especially yeah, maybe, in the rear window. Maybe it's important, too, because it just shows you how, um, how, how, how small he's etching in this film, you know, but the, you know, the, the, it's of course not a significant detail, but it shows, the, it shows the meticulous level of attention, you know. There's a comment you make uh, saying the visual always trumps the verbal, and it's during the scene where Stella, Jeff tells Stella he's, he needs a woman who's willing to go anywhere and do anything, and yet Stella is pushing Jeff around the apartment wherever she wants, yeah. doing whatever she wants with him, and Hitchcock seems to really enjoy this contrast between the visual and the auditory. Yeah, that's it's a great, and then it, and it picks up a theme throughout the whole film that Jeff Jeff is supposed to be this Hemingway-esque kind of guy, but he can't do anything. And meanwhile, the women become more and more active, almost you know. And Grace Kelly is like an action hero by the end of the film when she's doing it all really nicely dressed and in, in you know nice heels, because he was he was supposed to be based on uh, he's supposedly based on Robert Capa, the, the famous photographer, World War II photographer, and who was a man of action too. So. That, too, could be Hitchcock getting his payback on Men of Action, you know. He, he certainly wasn't. The courtyard scenes you refer to as little silent films, that comes from uh, the days that Hitchcock became, began as a silent film director. And there's a lot of 
um, I guess, exposition told through visual cues in this um, in this movie, and a lot of it's told through Jeff's facial expressions. Um, you yeah. obviously state that the newlyweds, uh, when they come there, they, we know they're newlyweds because the husband carries the wife across the yeah. threshold of the front door. And it's a really simple way of doing that. And then you see Jeff's reaction shot, ah... So, I mean, the other thing that you state about this is that um, all of the courtyard windows are different genres. So there's some drama, there's some romance, there's some horror. And there's even a point where Jeff becomes so comfortable with this voyeurism that he's snacking during this. But it it is almost like he is the audience member flicking through the TV on his remote control, picking what he wants to watch at the time. And he's got this endless supply, apparently. I think Hitchcock had that in mind. I think the sandwich, the drinking sandwich, in a image that, you know, Hitchcock's not, a, he's not American, he's British, and he was horrified by these triangular white bread sandwiches and with a glass of milk. This is like, this is, he was, as, as you may know, he was kind of man, disgusted by milk. And this is, this is that kind of bland American food that he found comic and repulsive already. And then having that little bland snack while you watch TV, I really, I think he really, um, intend that to be an image of a late night TV viewer. I mean, TV is just starting to take over. I hadn't thought of it. You know, you, there's just one of those simple things that he's eating a sandwich. You just take that for granted. But it is very much. I mean, just the level of detail that Hitchcock's put in here and what that means. But one point when she, you know, it, it, it lends some re- resonance to the film when Stella says we've become a nation of peeping toms. Hmm. I, I mean, she's talking about us as film goers, but I think it also makes sense. And now, you know. It, Films are starting to um, come into the living room now, you know, so you can just sit there in your pajamas and eat your sandwich and be a voyeur, and it, that's a new thing. That's a new thing, and I think that, as, as I mentioned in the commentary, Hitchcock's going to go on to make a lot of money out of television right then. Yeah. So it, that film is very timely in pointing out the point where where our addiction to, our voyeuristic addiction to these external images is now being imported right into our living room. Okay. It makes it a little stranger and seedier. Do you know what year his TV series started? I think, boy, this film is 54, and I'm, I, I, I'll make a mistake if I say it, but it's real close. Yeah. I want to say 55, 56, something like that. Grace Kelly's entrance occurs with what you call a dreamlike kiss. What's the significance yeah. of this introduction besides it being stunningly beautiful? I think it's almost, you're almost left operating on a more artistic level, almost on a subconscious level. I don't know that it's... It just shows how important Grace Kelly was to him and how moving he was to, she was to him. Uh, and that, that she comes in as a shadow first, and you know that that moment you you you're, you're, he's playing with you, and you think it's a suspenseful moment, but that alone says that she has some kind of huge spiritual kind of resonance in this film. And then the kiss, of course, is almost directing to the camera. It's a, it, it it almost seems like Hitchcock's greatest kiss with Grace Kelly on film, you know? I mean, uh, she, she swoops right down to the camera. He, 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 every once in a while, he has kisses that are so intimate, some critics all call them kind of pornographic, you know? I mean, he just can't get close enough. And that stop-action photography is gorgeous. I think in the long run, I would just say it's an ode to Grace Kelly, who he just adores, you know, and, um, and emphasizes that... She's the she's the she's the essence of this film. She's what Jeff should know he needs. <laughs> you know, and the whole thing came about when he he saw Ingrid Bergman. Apparently, if you want, if you if this is true, that he saw Ingrid Bergman being taken for granted by Robert Kappa, and at that point he was kind of in love with Ingrid Bergman, and he mm-hmm. couldn't believe Robert Kappa could take this goddess for granted. 
you know, and so it, it, it reflects a little bit just how deeply to make a really good film, he had to kind of he had to kind of get excited about his actress and get romanticized to come up with these beautiful lush images. And so I can't really give a concrete explanation other than it's showing how important Lisa is both Jeff and to Hitchcock, especially that kind of first person kiss. I think it's almost his most private moment with Grace Kelly that he shares for himself almost, you know. I love that um, it does start with something that feels a little more sinister than it's going to turn out. The the shadow creeping over Jeff is is a fantastic shot, and then to transition that into this really stunning shot of the kiss and the stop motion, as you say, which changes it. It kind of elevates it above everything that we everything else we see in the movie because that's not stop motion, so it's a little bit of a difference. But to start with the shadow and then transition into this kiss is is a really amazing sequence of shots and if you want to you know tap into his typical black humor too i mean he, there are many times in the film where jeff makes jokes about marriage being a dark thing or marriage being a you know a violent thing or marriage, not marriage. so it's almost like this could be this is that thing he fears this is that uh, what he's worried about or if you want to get all freudian on it you know we see all these examples where he seems to be scared of her sexually there's there's another explanation of the shadow you state that uh, Mrs. Thorwald is a dead ringer for Lisa, and uh, there's a there's a couple of scenes there, particularly when she's creeping up on Lars on the phone to his mistress, where you get a really good look at her, and that the nightgown that she wears is the exact same nightgown that Lisa will wear. It's just Lisa's wearing a shawl as well. Is right. Mrs. Thorwald meant to posit for Lisa, and does this have any kind of commentary on whether Jeff has hostile feelings towards Lisa? Lars is a lot like Jeff. He's an older man. He travels a lot, and he's trying to get out of a relationship. Mm. You know, I mean, both Jeff and Lisa want to get rid of the woman in their life, but obviously, uh, I mean, Jeff and Lars, obviously, Tharval is a lot more <laughs> dramatic. But that would make sense with these all these windows across the way being kind of projections of Jeff's fears and fantasies and opinions. Right from the beginning, he has ideas about what Lars Tharval's life is like. So I think, yeah, I think the Jeff wants to get rid of Lisa. Lars wants to get rid of his wife. What's really ironic is later in the film, Lisa will be in Lars Thorwald's apartment and Lars will have his hands around her throat. So Jeff gets what he wants. He wanted to get rid of Lisa. Well, there he is with his doppelganger is ready to knock her off. Mm. But of course, the beautiful thing Hitchcock's accomplished there is by at this point, Jeff doesn't want that anymore. So it's almost, this is almost the moment where he decides he wants Lisa when his fantasy comes true, that he's actually going to get rid of her in a final way. So it's a, it's a beautifully uh, rendered uh, plot idea. That connection between Lisa and Miss Thorwald is so strong that Lisa becomes the second Mrs. Thorwald. She shrinks down and goes into that window across the way and becomes a movie image of fan. Another thing people often comment is that Jeff can't really feel for Lisa until she becomes a little fantasy woman across the way, like all the other ones, you know? Yeah. Only when she becomes a window does he feel all this empathy for her. <laughs> it's almost like you have to become part of his fantasy to get into his good graces. Yeah, and you do say that Thorwald acts like a doppelganger, or I like the term dark double of Jeff. Um, and that that's very yeah. true. I mean, the scene where Jeff ends his relationship with Lisa and she's got that fantastic line as she walks out of the apartment that she's not going to see him for a long time, at least until tomorrow night. And that's directly followed by the scene where Thorwald murders his wife. So it's it's echoing in Jeff's fantasy world as well at that point. That's right. Yeah, and that's I, I have to think about that example. But there are many times where what's happening with Jeff and Lisa, it's echoed across the way. You know, I mean, and 
So the night they have their biggest fight is the night Mr. Thorwald gets murdered. So all these, you know, more extreme... This, I ask, there's a lot of instances in which the Thorwald is just a more extreme case of Jeff and Lisa. There's a point around this point, obviously, where Jeff becomes what you call a professional voyeur and that he becomes a surrogate for the filmmaker instead of a surrogate for the film goer and that's because he's pulled out his binoculars and then he's pulled out his telephoto lens so he's using more professional equipment just as a director would rather than just his eyes as an audience member would yeah and he sits there kind of immobile in a chair like Hitchcock did and um he'll even kind of orchestrate you know dictate what's happening like oh you did it okay now move over he'll actually talk to the people across the way but um yeah he's a guy looking through a camera at people fantasizing about things going on. I mean, that's an artist or that's a film director, you know. I mean, you don't, it doesn't have to be just about film. It can be, you can join that timeless tradition of reflection, the artist's reflection on their own goes back to Pygmalion, right? You know, the way artists get lost in fantasy. Uh, but it's certainly true of filmmakers. It's certainly true of Hitchcock, who made a living out of these very intense relationships with women that he looked at through a camera. I think this and Vertigo are probably the films where he most kind of deals with that, although that, that's something he never caught to in interviews, you know, that he was thinking that way. But it, it's just, it boggles the mind to think he couldn't be, especially in Vertigo. And he's such a particular director, so you've got to believe that what's on the screen there has some meaning. Plus, he was very good at just telling the same tired old story interview after interview, mm. pulling out the MacGuffin for the 500th time. So that he could, so that he wouldn't talk about this kind of thing. And he was very conscious. His wife Alma, she she was intricately involved in all these projects. So there, it's very curious. You know what their conversations were like at the end of the night. She knew what he, she knew about his fantasy. She knew about his personal life, and I'm sure he wasn't. You know, that's a big part of why he didn't talk about it publicly. But mm-hmm. he doesn't have to. It can be. It's a very it's a very um, legitimate analysis of what an artist does, or the excesses of art, or of, 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 what, of what an artist does. It, and like I said, it's as, it's as old as Pygmalion, the, the question of an artist lost in his fan. You know, but, uh, I mean, Baudelaire always said art, the artists were like, um, oh, what's the bird, the seabird? Is it a booby or another kind of can't think of the albatross? You know, that. When it flies in the sky, it's magnificent and gorgeous. But when it lands on a ship and walk and waddles like a you know ridiculous creature, and that's the artist. And I, the Hitchcock films are a little about that too. You know that um, he's he's almost most alive when he's soaring in his imagination. And he's conscious of that. The switch that Jeff makes when he starts looking through the lens, obviously. That's another switch in the story that allows Hitchcock to make a technical switch. You've previously got these uh, quite wide shots because that's what Jeff's able to see from his apartment. As soon as Jeff gets the camera, he uh, Hitchcock is able to zoom in with his camera and you start to see the details of what's going on in this apartment, particularly Thorwald's apartment. Um, so yeah. we're kind of, uh, he's kind of forcing our view away from just the general voyeurism to the story that's in Rear Window about the murder. And that's a really interesting switch that he uses a character on screen to make that technical switch rather than just as, I guess, most directors would just make that switch. Yeah, there again, it goes to that verisimilitude. He, he gradually moves you in closer and then he finds plausible ways to make it happen. And then, then, of course, you also get the circular image that allows you at times to have that iris effect like they had in the old silent films, you know. So another way, there's so many ways in which he's making constantly think about what you're seeing as a as a film, you know, he, he never, 
And, you know, the greatest moment is when Lars Thorwald turns and stares at you in the audience, which, you know, you know, that actually makes eye contact with you. Hitchcock always wants to remind you that you're, you know, that you're watching a film, that he knows you're watching a film, he's teasing you for watching a film. So there are all sorts of moments where he's referring to the, the filmmaking process. But that's one with the iris effect from the lens. And But, they, they, you know, Jeff looking, Jeff, with, with that camera, his mind looks, in his hand looks like a, a photographer or a cameraman. What he, Hitchcock has all sorts of dirty jokes when he puts that telephoto lens in his lap, you know, I mean, yeah, <laughs> Hitchcock had such a lascivious sense of humor, he's like Shakespeare, he just couldn't pass up a dirty joke. So he has all sorts of fun with that telephoto lens and the paralyzing the waist down and so on and so he's operating on a lot of levels at one time. I mean, making fun of filmmaking, Hitchcock, Hitchcock as a man, Hitchcock as a filmmaker. Do you think it's weird that Jeff didn't take many photos? (laughs) I never asked myself that. What what photos would he take? You mean as he he documented things? I've had students ask me that too. Um, You know, yes, I guess that makes sense. Maybe that would have made it his case too strong or something. Because he does take the photo of the garden. Yeah, but what else could he take? What photos could he have taken that would have advanced his case? Oh, I, I'm not. I'm not completely sure. I just think that maybe if he thinks that he's witnessing a murder, I thought maybe he would have snapped away a little bit more happily. Hitchcock <laughs> <laughs> thought, that, but it is funny, isn't it? How this is again goes back to unity. How many things Hitchcock revolve, he finds to tie back into the camera? He solved the crime with his camera. And then when he's having to defend himself, you know, if he, any other movie, it's going to be with some random object, a stick or a gun, but no, Hitchcock makes him defend himself with a camera. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. then it becomes a commentary on how he's been trying to keep this camera between him and reality, and reality is crushing in on him. And Hitchcock's just ingenious about, I think Rear Window is such a great film because he limits his scope to such, you know, few, so few things, and then he uses and reuses them like a stew that's allowed to steep for a good long time, you know. So the camera, or the fact that the, the key piece of edit, evidence, the wedding ring, is ties into the general theme of the film, Will He Marry Lisa? So he's always figuring out ways to find double and triple means to things. Moving away from the um, audio commentary, and um, just quickly I want to ask you a question about the book that you wrote, which was called Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window, The Well-Made Film. And can you just give us some insight into where the phrase "the well-made film" came from? You know, it's, I think it's kind of a bland name, but um, I think I was thinking of Clint, Clint Brooks' uh, "The Well-Wrought Urn," which is a, you know the, the, a, a new critical study, and these were these were uh, critics who who just reverenced the work of art itself, not the biography, not the historical context, but the um, their the criterion for judging a great work was the work itself, its structure, its unity, its form, its balance, its proportions. A kind of an aesthetic appreciation with this, this school of criticism. And, and I, so I think I was, I was trying to point out that, you know, you said at the beginning why you chose this film, that this is, this is something of a, just a perfect little gem of a film in, in pure construction, in pure aesthetics. I can't think of any other Hitchcock film that is as tidy. And so, I mean, even all the other great ones we've mentioned, you know, I mean, Psycho has that scaled down television crew that makes it kind of cheap looking, you know, I mean, and, and uh, Vertigo is kind of languorous and has no humor, and, and, and yeah, I, don't, I just think Rear Window is impeccably made, so I guess it was a way of signaling that I was going to emphasize just the incredible intricacy, structure, and balance of the film, which makes it a, a perfect Hollywood product, too, because the Hollywood studio system was an art of, it was a classical art, it was an art of balance and proportion and unity, and, and so 
it's not only a great Hitchcock film, I think it's one of the great examples of what the studio did, you know, the kind of product they created. Your most recent book, correct me if I'm wrong, is called The Essence of Chaplin, The Style, The Rhythm and The Grace of a Master from 2014. Are you working on any other uh, books on film at the moment? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a, a book about Ernst Lubitsch's Student Prince of Heidelberg, <laughs> okay. which is a beautiful, wonderful, way underappreciated silent film. Just at the end of the silent era, one of the reasons it's unappreciated is not in, it's not released anywhere yet. So you can see it on YouTube now, and it's been released. It has, have you have you ever seen it? Or I don't know. With, I um, never have. No. The composer, the British composer, I've chatted with him about the film, and I can't think of his name right now. He's created a beautiful. He, he's the one who worked with McCartney on his things. Um, you know him, but he created a beautiful score for this film, so it is shown publicly with his score mm-hmm. at times. I think it's starting to gather a following. And so it's a it's a it's a little chance for me to talk about Lubitsch and silent film and a kind of film Lubitsch made that nobody seems to appreciate. It doesn't fit into the normal Lubitsch mold. So that's what I'm working on. Thank you for joining us, John, and for our listeners. Um, you can check out the audio commentary, as we said, on the DVD and the Blu-ray releases that is available either separately or in the Alfred Hitchcock Masterpiece Collection. And certainly try to track down John's book, Hitchcock's Rear Window, The Well-Made Film, and we'll provide some links to where you can purchase that in the show notes for this episode. So uh, once again, thank you so much, John, for your insight into this movie. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. It was fun. There's also this idea running through the film about social apathy, uh, which reaches its peak in the dog murder scene, where the woman kind of lectures her neighbours, everyone comes out to listen to her, and, you know, she she kind of chastises them for not being neighbourly and for not really caring. And this idea of social I- isolation actually kind of grew after Rear Window, and the most famous case of it is, and oh gosh, I'm not going to be able to remember her name. And there was recently a Netflix documentary done on it, and there's a New York Times book called, I think, 25 Windows or something. And it's, it's uh, this girl really was murdered, um, and there were dozens of witnesses who saw it, and nobody called the police, and nobody helped. Nobody did anything. Uh, and since then, there have been a lot of studies about this. Um, it, it It's kind of connected to obedience to authority. So the idea that you you will do something that goes against your own moral grain because someone wearing a lab coat is telling you to. Hmm. And it it is really disturbing. And I mean, look, you know, Rear Window, it's not really what it's about and it only just sort of barely touches upon it. But it is something, it, it does lead to, for me, probably the most chilling moment in the film, which is, and it's so well done because that moment's really dramatically like a peak in the film and we're watching everybody and we're really caught up with it. And it's only when Jeff says to us, have you noticed the old's not come out? He's the only one. And then we get that shot and you can just see his cigarette in the dark. Mm. And it's essentially an admission that he's killed this dog because he's the only one not curious about what's happened. Also, I wouldn't come out with the way that she was blabbering on. Shut up. I mean, she chastised all of her neighbours. She never seemed to have an issue with them before. You'd come out to see this squashed dog on the ground. 
it's really interesting that it's in there and it's really interesting to think about. And we'll, I'll, we'll post something in the show notes, Damien, about that murder mm-hmm. so that if you haven't heard about it, which I'm sure you have, because it's kind of come into the zeitgeist a bit, a bit over the last few years, uh, that you can have a read of it. It's really worth reading. I don't know anything about it, so yeah, I'm really intrigued now. I read the book, um, which isn't a great book. It's called 25 Windows. Something like that. It's probably more windows or less, but... (laughs) (laughs) Probably not 25. 20-something windows. Did you get my note? Well, did you get it for a while? Right. I'll give you a chance to find out. Meet me in the bar at the Albert Hotel. Do it right away. Why should I? little business meeting to settle the estate of your late wife. There's, uh, I think, a lot of the voyeurism in this movie and where this differs from what Truffaut was saying in his review is that this is just life, you know? This is just... We, we see this everywhere, a lot of this stuff. So you look, out at the win- you look out the window at someone and you see something like what's happening in rear window and just the fact that they've got their windows open. I mean, most of it is pretty meaningless... Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not too bad. And where this movie differs, obviously, is it presents us with a murder or the suspicion of a murder. And that was one of the things Hitchcock did best was suspicion throughout his movies. Mm. But then you get the adventure to find out if that's baseless or not, and eventually the revelation of what happened. So I think it turns it around a little bit and it says, if we see something that's suspicious, do we act? And if we don't and it turns out to be true, are we at fault? So there's an ethical argument to both sides of the story. And Hitchcock is the master of exploring uh, banality. The idea of that it is just life. He does it in such an interesting way. He gives you detail that most films would skip. And he makes tension out of somebody moving from one place to another and what they do from A to B, where usually you would just cut from A to B. And that's like a, it's a he's a master of detail. And that's like the fact that you know Jeff's apartment and stuff so well is because he explores those things. And it's, yeah, it's just masterful. Hitchcock ran into some production code objections to this oh, yeah. film, as I'm sure you guys would imagine. At the time, it was Joseph Breen, and he objected to Miss Torso's sexiness, the physical actions between Miss Lonely Hearts and the pickup she brings home, Stella's humour, uh, the incessant sex between the newlywed couple, and the strong suggestion of a sexual relationship between Jeff and Lisa, especially when she announces she's spending the night with him. I know we were all a little scandalised when that moment <laughs> happened. Uh, but by the, time, by the time production was ready to begin, Breen was nearing retirement, and his replacement was an English guy named Jeffrey Sherlock, and he was far more liberal, and he didn't follow through with any of these concerns. So the film just went out as Hitchcock wanted it to. Oh, my God. So it was kind of a bit of luck, really, that we got Rear Window in the shape that we got it in. Is something on your mind? doesn't make sense to me. What does? Women aren't that unpredictable. Mm. Well, I can't guess what you're thinking. A woman has a favorite handbag, and it always hangs on her bedpost where she can get at it easily. And then all of a sudden she goes away on a trip and leaves it behind. Why? Because she didn't know she was going on a trip, and where she's going, she wouldn't need the handbag. The thing that I love about Rear Window is that it does become... For them, it's it's almost like watching, for us, like watching a true crime story. 
Like there's a certain glibness to yeah. how they discuss it, particularly with Stella. Where do you suppose like, he cut her up? I think it's glibidity. And, and you know, oh, of course, the bathtub. And, you know, like there's a kind of playfulness to it. Yeah. Obviously, if you really think about it, we're talking about a story where someone murders yeah. his wife, cuts her up, puts her head in the garden. I mean, to be there in that moment, they never get close to really understanding what that moment is, you know? Yeah. So they're afforded this distance from it. No, there's a lot of humour in there. But, I mean, they're afforded the same distance we're afforded when we watch true crime and it just becomes entertainment and fodder. Yeah. There's a certain apathy in that. There's a certain cruelty in that. It's like the murder porn episode in South Park. Yeah. It's exactly that. It is. I want to watch some, like, what what, what do they say? The informative (laughs) murder porn. I think Thorwald's left. I don't see... Hello. I love, love that Jeff uses the camera to protect himself at the end. And the reason I love it is because you get the sense that he can justify himself by saying, I'm a photographer, I'm someone who observes and captures human behavior. And this is a really hollow justification. Well, there's there's a whole other ethical argument there. About, you know, if a crime is being committed, is it more valuable to help the person who the crime is being committed against or is it more valuable to document it for... Yeah, that's interesting too. Like when you get those little subtitles saying the documentary crew could not interfere here. But no, look, the reason I love it is because when he defends himself against Thorwald's approach, the flashbulb is kind of a hollow weapon. Yeah. Because it delays him... But it doesn't stop Thorwald's murderous approach towards him. It's no more a justification than it is an effective weapon. Are you? Were you happy when Thorwald threw him out the window? I was terrified. I was terrified as well, but I like the fact that, it, I don't know, there's kind of a smug element to what Jimmy Stewart's doing. Like, like he's like, I'm going to be Kevin McAllister in Home Alone and use the, the resources at my disposal and, and do that. Whereas, you know... If you were Thorwood, would you just not close your eyes and just quickly run up to him? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what Damien said. Why doesn't he close his yeah, eyes? I think if we're going to talk about plot holes, that is a big one. But but he's still. But the good thing is, it would feel a lot more hollow. That plot point would feel a lot worse if Jeff didn't yeah. get attacked, yeah. or if that was the method that brought him down. Yeah. Thorwood doesn't really get brought down by Jeff. He gets thrown out the window. Yeah, which I think is. Pretty great. Like, the fact that it happens is, is good because, in some way, Jeff needs a bit of a comeuppance, I think. And it's, uh, you know, a very clear example of Hitchcock's dark humour is that, you know, his fall's broken, but not enough that he still breaks his other leg. <laughs> he's got yeah. two casts it's, on at the end. Like he's, he's got a week left at the start of the movie, and <laughs> now he's got another couple of months at least. As a dot point we are going to explore was, like, who is Jeff at the beginning of the film and who is he at the end of the film? And all I wrote, like, one, the first sentence I wrote is, Jeff is a photographer with a broken leg at the beginning of the film. At the end of the film, he's a photographer with two broken legs. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is a, like a really sardonic sense of humour that... To go back to that idea about Jeff's transition, if there is one, it's definitely around Lisa. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's where he really does change. And Lisa has a wonderful moment in the film, and it's one of the most terrifying moments in the film when she goes into Thor's apartment and she gets the wedding ring. Yeah. Truffaut wrote about her getting the wedding ring that it's kind of a double victory because not only has she pleased Jeff... 
But now she's also got the wedding ring, you know. That she's always wanted. That she's always wanted. But also it it is really frightening when Jeff is watching her and he can't do anything. Yeah. And the way James Stewart plays that scene is impeccable. Those little, oh, oh no, what do I do? You know, really, really awful. And also I, I find it so poignant that he can just see this little strip of road it makes me feel really sad and moved by Jeff's situation. And I guess in part that's going to be because, you know, my dad's been in a wheelchair most of my adult life. And so I'm very much aware about scope and I've always felt grateful that I can get up and leave and that, you know, my vistas and my landscapes and my panoramas can change so easily. And I've always been very sensitive to the idea of people who are in a situation where they've got a very limited view and that is never more profoundly felt than in that scene where he cannot help Lisa and doesn't know if she's going to make it and watching those cops come through. I mean, it's just a very panicky moment. It's so suspenseful. It's so well done. And it's because they kind of play on that throughout the whole film. The fact that he can't, he can't be personally involved uh, in a physical level, like helping or trying to work out uh, some of the things that he's doing. Obviously Lisa goes over there and, and, like there's tw- like two in- two instances where she where she goes over there. Even like, though she's wearing impractical haute couture clothing, <laughs> she's still very she's very agile, dexterous. Yeah, uh, dexterous is a better word. But also, this is Lisa going into a dangerous situation, which is what Jeff has been putting himself in for years yeah. with his job. It's finding her adventurous streak. Yeah. I just love the fact that there's this notion that Jeff is this like almost stunt photographer. <laughs> it's like okay, like but it's not what you do all the time. You know what I mean? He did walk out into the middle of a racetrack apparently yeah. to take a photo with a car coming at him at presumably a hundred and something miles an hour. Yeah, he's stupid. <laughs> well, he has a very daredevil sense of adventure and he's very... A daredevil go-getter. <laughs> Some people have a risk addiction, you know, and that's sort of how he's presented. But I think that's diametrically opposed to sort of how I see Jimmy Stewart. Well, why? Why don't you see him as taking adventure? Yeah, yeah. I don't see him doing that. I don't feel like he's ever done anything that interesting. But, um... See, I, I like uh, Cary Grant in, in North by Northwest, but that would have been the perfect role for, you know, this character of Jeff. Yeah. Does all kinds of crazy shit in that movie. But then Hitchcock would have had to put up with Cary Grant's bullshit. Huh. And apparently this was a very happy set and lasted for a very long time. Um, they were in production for a long time. Everyone loved it. And apparently as they were leaving the set, they turned off the lights and Grace Kelly said, it feels like I'm, we're leaving home. Isn't that nice? What I think is funny is because she's present, uh, Grace Kelly's presented uh, as Lisa in this very kind of proper, but she's still very uh, down to earth, still very aware of her surroundings. I don't think her head is completely in the clouds. Like, I don't think it's particularly like that. I think she's got some level of uh, just, just awareness of, of the situation. Yeah. Um, I'll just make this last comment about the morality of Rear Window. Uh, When asked about it, Hitchcock said, nothing could have prevented me from making that picture because my love for cinema is stronger than any morality. I I think the idea that cinema has morals is what creates bad cinema. And it's often in, you know, the amorality of cinema that we find out about our own sense of moral ethics and how we feel about things. Cinema, above all else, should be morally provocative. Rear Window was released on August 1, 1954 and grossed $26 million. 
It was among the highest grossing films of the year, along with White Christmas, the Kirk Douglas starring adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the biblical drama Demetrius and the Gladiators, and the Humphrey Bogart vehicle The Cane Mutiny. It was released uh, in both 1983 and 2000, re-released, and currently has a cumulative box office total of $36.7 million. Along with Notorious, which made $24 million, and Psycho, which made $32 million, Rear Window is one of Hitchcock's highest-grossing films. Critical reception, as we said, was very good for the movie. Time magazine called it the second most entertaining picture made by Hitchcock after the 39 Steps. Variety's William Brogdon called it, one of, called it one of Hitchcock's better thrillers, saying Hitchcock combines technical and artistic skills in a manner that makes this an unusually good piece of murder mystery entertainment. Bosley Crowther did the review for the New York Times and he was positive. He talked about the ethics of peeking into the lives of others. He said Hitchcock's film is not significant in what it says, but what it does have to say about people and human nature is superficial and glib. It exposes many facets of the loneliness of city, city life and it tacitly demonstrates the impulse of morbid curiosity. The purpose of it is sensation and that it generally provides, and that it generally provides in the colourfulness of its detail and in the flood of menace toward the end. It's pretty difficult to find contemporary reviews of this movie. So when you've talked about the Truffaut review. So there's a lot of re retrospective reviews instead. And a lot of those came out in 1983 and 2000 when the film was re-released. And Roger Ebert did a four-star review. And Vincent Canby did a 1983 review for the New York Times. And, of course, all of these reviews are just absolutely glowing because, you know, they're 30 years later and Hitchcock's passed away at this point and generally <laughs> regarded as the greatest director ever. So, you know, these reviews are either helped or hindered by hindsight, but they're never as interesting to re-examine. All right, ladies and gents, we've come to that time of the evening where we do our film quiz. So Cameron inexplicably won last month's We'll see if he can maintain his title as reigning champion. Doubtful. Damien, what film did Grace Kelly turn down to appear in Rear Window? That would be the greatest American movie ever made on the waterfront. That's correct. And uh, on the waterfront, uh, Eve Marie Saint took that role and later became a Hitchcock actress in North by Northwest. Yeah, and... Uh, she won Best Supporting Actress for um, On the Waterfront the same year. It came out the same year as Rear Window. And Grace Kelly won Best Actress that year, but not for Rear Window. She won for The Country Girl. You, you still get one point for that. Uh, Cameron, which real-life adversary of Hitchcock's did he model the killer on in Rear Window? David O'Sullivan. Oh, he's got it! Who tried to talk Jimmy Stewart out of accepting his role in Rear Window? His wife. Why? Because Grace Kelly would sleep with him. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually true, apparently. Uh, how old, uh, Cameron, how old was Georgine Darcy when she was cast as Miss Torso? Oh. 22. 17. What? They would not get oh. away with that these days. I'm... I'm happy to be wrong on that. Damien, what is the significance of the book Lisa is reading at the end, Beyond the High Himalayas by William O. Douglas, aside from the obvious narrative implications of it? Sucked in. I know I've heard it before, but I've, I've forgotten it. 
Well, uh, William O'Douglas, the author, actually suffered from polio as a child and was bedridden and was told he'd be crippled for life. Amazingly, he ended up having a series of globetrotting adventures and wrote several books about his travels. So there's a nice little link in there with Joe. Cameron, Rear Window was not the first time Hitchcock made a uh, one-set location film. What two previous films had he done this on? Rope. Yes. And Lifeboat. Yes. And to a degree, uh, Darlin' for Metal, although we do go outside um, once or twice. Yeah, there's a, there's a restaurant scene in that. Well, look, that's really all I had. So that means... Are you guys tired at the moment? Yeah. Okay, yep. Yeah, so I've got bonus questions. Cinematographer Robert Burke shot 12 movies for Hitchcock, but his career was cut short by tragedy. Do you know what happened to him? I don't know this either, so... Um... He actually strangely fell out of his own rear window. <laughs> his uh, oh, camera hand was ripped off by a dog. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in 1968, at the age of 58, he died in a house fire. Oh, God. Yeah. I really wish I didn't make that joke, Ben. Cameron, uh, how many times was costume designer Edith Head nominated for an Oscar? I know it's exactly a lot. I'm going to say six. 25 windows. 34. What? Nominations, apparently. She's the Meryl Streep of costume design. I'm out of them. So, look, we're going to call that one a tie. It's our first tie on Celluloid Junkies. Everybody comment and like. Now, uh, out of five, guys. Four and a half. Final comment? Four and a half, really. That seems nuts. Uh, I deduct half a star because of uh, the scene where Jimmy Stewart uh, is whispering needlessly on the phone. That shits me to tears. Oh, God, you're such an anti-whisperer person. Half a star for that. If I could do four and three quarter stars, I would. I'm taking half a star off your personality. What am I down to? Half a star now. (laughs) You're in minus. Yeah. Uh, Damien? Five. Final comment? Just... Brilliant, I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, it's one of those movies that just should always be watched by everybody all the time. I agree agree with all of that, despite my rating. Look, five stars. It's very funny, very frightening. Uh, It's so interesting. It puts the audience in an interesting position. Uh, It's just a marvellous film. I'm sure it'll be talked about many, many years from now. I don't think it'll uh, ever lose its cachet or its um, the fascination that it has with people. What, um, What would we give... Star rating for its a very successful remake, Body Double. This is a really controversial subject in my household because I am a huge De Palma fan and Body Double is definitely like second tier of his stuff. I would give Body Double three and a half. I like Body Double. I oh, think it's a great I, fun I, movie. I know it's but you need right. to you need to know that it's De Palma. I think if you saw it without that knowledge, you'd be like, "This is just eighties trash." And De Palma is very much a a, a lot of his movies are homages to Hitchcock movies, yeah. and so you need to watch it in that respect. I mean, look, in all bad De Palma films, you're always going to get a handful of great scenes and moments. So when I think of Body Double, I think of the shopping mall. Oh, what would you give? Since it'll never come up as a film where you do one thing, uh, the other sort of remake, Disturbia. Yeah, Disturbia is really fun as well. I'd probably give Disturbia a three. 
Disturbia has aged really badly. I think I saw it a couple of years ago and I could barely keep my interest in it. Yeah. Also, I'm not a big Shia LaBeouf fan. He is. It's funny, I think Shia LaBeouf is a, is a really, really good actor. I think his personal life has kind of overshadowed my feelings of him now. And look, for anyone who... All of our gay male <laughs> listeners, you should really get your hands on Nymphomaniac. By Lars von Trier because Shia LaBeouf has some very sexy scenes in that film. Anyway, if you do enjoy Rear Window, there's also Sliver by Philip Noyce and <laughs> yes. Road Games by Richard Franklin, which stars Jamie Lee Curtis. It's an Australian film and it's often referred to as very Hitchcockian and Rear Window on Wheels. So there's a few movies there if you haven't checked them out, but you enjoy Rear Window. <laughs> Uh, and that wraps up our episode on Rear Window. Join us again next month as we take a look at John Huston's 1948 film noir, Key Largo. Download it, order the Blu-ray, steal someone's copy, do whatever you have to do to see it. Give it a watch and then you can join us again next month. Um, until then, keep the curtains drawn, don't break any bones, and mind your own business because life can get really complicated if you don't. starts with a baby, we'll say, at the age of six months, and the mother says, boo, and scares the hell out of the baby, gives it the hiccups, and then the baby giggles. There's its first moment of fear. Later on, it's on a swing, getting higher and higher, and catching its breath when it goes too high. And so it goes. We all enjoy, shall we say, putting our toe in the cold water of fear.